In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, O treasure of every good and bestower of life, come and dwell us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O good one. Sit down, please. Two months have passed since our last talk, over two months ago, actually, two and a half months ago. And the first talk, which is talk 28, which it would be good to listen to talk 28, for those who are going to hear it on the audio, it would be good to listen to talk 28 before you listen to talk 29, because it actually it's a bit of a continuation. Uh, not compulsory, but it would be better. And in the first talk... What we discovered from reading various sections from different books on the soul after death, we discovered that souls are helped primarily by four or five ways. One, the greatest way to help a soul after it's departed this life is through the commemoration at the liturgy, especially from the time that the person dies for 40 days. And we learned from St. John, Archbishop of Shanghai, who said that that is mostly done either in cathedrals, where they serve every day the liturgy, or monasteries. Then we read as well that private prayer can help a soul that has departed this life. We also read that a great help is almsgiving, when we give money to the poor on behalf of that soul. That was... Um, important as well. And we read a number of examples of uh, how souls came back and asked for commemorations, etc. That was all in Talk 28. I don't want to waste time and repeat it all. But one thing that came out of Talk 28, or a few things that came out of Talk 28, uh, one is that people that have heard it, especially those, those the CDs now that have gone overseas, I've got some feedback that people were quite moved, quite uh, affected when they heard those orthodox teachings and stories from lives of saints, etc., on this topic. Many have now begun, as they've said to me, that they knew that you commemorate the dead, etc., but now after that talk, they actually are being more uh, diligent by making sure that they put names, commemorate names, light candles for um, people at their, privately at home or go to the uh, gravesite, get panahitas, or as we say in, in panahitas in Slavonic, which is um, memorial prayers for the dead, which can be done by a priest at the grave or in the church. Some other people actually said they were a bit disturbed. And I like that because that means that there's a reaction in the person and reactions usually can have a, a good result. Now, the, one person said that it seems that from the stories that I read last time that someone can lead a bad life or whatever and then they can uh, wait for their relatives to pray for them and then they get out of hell or along those lines. And the person became confused. 
If you remember the talk that I did uh, quite a few months ago on the intellect, etc., we have to be careful when we are reading orthodox texts, the lives of saints, that we don't just use our intellect. We have to also use our faith. And people can become uh, possessed at times. You can become intellectually damaged when you try to go into the deep spiritual things of the church without a humble mind, without some type of spiritual life. We are not commanded by God to know everything because only he knows everything. We are not required to understand with our minds, which is what the Catholic Church does, to understand with our minds the things of God. And I've given you many examples that if we as human beings cannot understand the hidden secrets of the physical world, as I've said before, whether it's biology, physics, etc., even psychology, they themselves admit that when they study the mind, they only know so much and there's so much more that they don't know. Studying the body, diseases, the doctors a lot of times throw up their hands and say, I don't know. Nature, things in nature, things in space, all these things that have been created by God are not easily understood or understood at all. So then if we can't understand the things that we see, the physical things, why then do we try to understand with our minds only the things of God? So does that mean I'm not annoyed with the person? I'm not annoyed with the person because I've gone through similar things to that. And also many times when I'm reading even now, from lives of saints, from the writings of the saints, church fathers, etc., I become confused on certain things. One of those things which have often confused me, which I want to share, is where I read, and I'm sure a lot of you have read as well, things in the, like comments, like written by the fathers, which say, um, unless someone is purified, they cannot be saved. Unless someone has cleared their thoughts of all worldly things, they cannot be saved. Unless someone has been illumined, they cannot be saved. Unless someone has been rid of all the passions, they cannot be saved. And we read these things in the books. And a lot of people, when they read them, and including myself in times past, they fall into despair. Then we hear about great uh, monastics, holy people, who, when they passed away, even though they led such a, a wonderful, holy life, and as their soul came out, that they were greeted by angels and demons, and then they, the demons and the angels started fighting over their soul, and then they tried to go through the air, as we say, through the aerial tiles, where all the demons are, and... We read a lot of times that 
they didn't make it. That they actually didn't make it. There was some sin that they forgot to confess. Or there was uh, some passion that was still active within them. And I'm sure a lot of you have read that. Now, when we read those things, it is understandable that one would fall into despair, that one would want to give up, that one would say, what's the point if we in the world, or you, a lot of people, well, we all live in the world, I suppose, so we live, like a lot of people, have children and families and all these responsibilities and find it difficult to lead spiritual lives, but yet we read in the writings of the saints and stories of holy people who lived in the desert, who fasted until their bodies were like sticks, the whole body was like a, a dried tree or something, and they did a lot of prostrations, they prayed continually, but yet the demons found one sin within them and they weren't saved. Now, have you read all these type of things? I'm sure that you have. And that, as I said, is enough to make someone just say, forget it, orthodoxy is too difficult. These things, of course, aren't presented in the other church, in the other faiths, because the Western world wouldn't accept it. It's got to be something easy. Actually, there are some orthodox priests who try to hide those things from their flock, thinking that, oh, if they read that, the people will become confused or people will fall into despair. I do believe to a certain level that people shouldn't just read ascetical books or just read philokalias and things like that, which are very deep because people become confused. But we read St. Nikolai Velimirovich, which is the Serbian saint, in his prologue, we see examples like that. The monk who, I think I read it to you about five months ago, where there was a monk and he was dying and there was um, a criminal that was passing by and he heard that this holy man was dying and then the criminal said, um, I want to go and see how a holy person dies. And then the monk that was dying said, live like me, be like me. He fell into pride. Be like me and you will be saved. And he lost himself, that particular monk that was dying, who was known as a holy person. So I personally believe that things need clarification. We need to explain things clearly so that people can understand and not fall into despair because despair is demonic. Anything which brings about despair, hopelessness, anything which brings about hardness of heart is not from God. Anything which brings about repentance, anything which brings about humble-mindedness, all those things, increase of faith, zeal to struggle, that's from God. That's how we know the difference between what is of God and what is that. Well, ba basic, there's a lot of other things, but on a basic level. So let us now continue on. The name of this talk will be, if only the righteous, in other words, the saints, if only the righteous are saved, what happens to those pious Orthodox Christians who die 
with passions and sins. And let's try and get to that point today. So here's a little story to show the importance of the commemoration of the dead. It says, how important commemoration at the liturgy is may be seen from the following occurrence. In Russia, there was a, a saint, Saint Theodosius of where are we, Chernogov? Chernogov, yep. Whose relics were incorrupt. They had not decomposed. There's a few of them in Russia, and there's quite a few of them also in Greece. Remember that during communist times, the communists would take these relics and put them into museums with other stuffed animals to mock the orthodox, and so people can see it and say, oh, they're just stuffed or they're, all, they're not real and things like that. But, of course, in Greece, some scientists have examined these relics and they actually have said that this is truly a human being there, but I, we don't know why they have not decomposed. Saint Spiridon, who is on the island of Corfu, is one of the better preserved relics. I personally knew the Archimandrite who used to change the shoes, etc., of the saint. And he said, yes, the face was black, the hands were black from all the uh, lambadas, from all the oil lamps. But he says, but underneath where, the, where that smoke didn't get to, he goes, his skin is pink. And it's a very, very, very well-preserved relic. And St. Spiridon died around 1,700 years ago. Now, St. Theodosios was uh, there, and there was a renowned starets, a holy person whose name was Alexis, and he was from a hermitage there at the Kiev Caves Lava, who would conduct the revesting of the relics. They would take the, the, the vestments off, change the relics, etc. He was in charge of that. And one day he became very tired and he just dozed off. And before him, in a dream, he saw the saint who told him, I thank you for labouring for me. Thank you for doing what you do. I beg you also, when you serve the liturgy, because this, this Alexis was a priest, I beg you, when you serve the liturgy, to commemorate my parents, priest Nikita and Maria. So the saint's parents, one, his father was a priest, and the mother, Maria. And then the star, it says, Alexis, to the saint in the dream, how can you, O saint, ask my prayers when you yourself stand at the heavenly throne and grant to people God's mercy? How can you, who are in heaven, stand in front of God, if we can say it in that, in that worldly sense, and you ask God for people of the world and you grant them mercy because of your boldness with God, how then are you asking me to pray for your parents? And then St. Theodosius replied, yes, this is true, but the offering at the liturgy is more powerful than my prayer. Now, this is important, and before I go on, later on, after this incident occurred, they actually found at the, at the actual saint, St. Theodosius' um, belongings, they found a little book of names that he had for commemoration, which they never, they never had found before. And in that book, it was verified that his parents' name was Nikita, priest, and Maria. So that happened later that they found the books 
to confirm that that was true, that that dream was correct. Now, what's important here before we go on? Apart from we are seeing that a great saint is asking a priest, a priest for prayers at the liturgy for his parents. The question is, the question here is, where are his parents? Does that mean that they're not saved? What are these prayers for? Why do we pray for the dead? That's what I want to really emphasise today. But another thing is that we forget and we run around looking for saints to pray for us or to whatever. When a priest, according to what this saint says, and I'll read you some more things later on, can give what a saint can give and more because God has appointed the priests to be mediators between God and man. God and man are separated because of sin. And then we have the priest in the middle and he is what's called mediator. A mediator is one who connects, who brings two parties together who are uh, at odds with each other, one can say. So the priest unites man with God. Without the priest, you cannot unite man, meaning human beings cannot be united with God. That's how God has appointed it through the apostles and through those who came after them, the present-day bishops and priests. Now, this story I found um, extremely moving and I want to go through it, showing you again what I'm trying to say. A certain priest, this priest here, Alexis, was a star. He was holy. Maybe some of you might say that's why the saint came to him because he was a holy priest. But today, some of them smoke and some of them are worldly and some of them are this and some of them are that, which is correct. And that's why, well, what are they going to be able to do? How are they going to give us help if they're in that way? And that's a good, a good thought, as long as it's not, you know, fully judgmental way, but it's a, a thought. A certain priest was particularly diligent in praying for the dead whose names were given to him to be remembered at the liturgy. He used to copy these names into his private notebook and pray for them all his life. So this priest was a priest for many, many decades and he would collect when people would give him names to say, oh, can you commemorate my father, commemorate my uncle, my grandfather? And he would take the name and a lot of times priests will take the name, might commemorate it once, might commemorate it a few times, and very rare, some don't commemorate at all. Uh, and then they will throw the lists away. This particular priest, he wouldn't throw the list away and he used to copy them all out in his book and he commemorated them all his life. The names accumulated and eventually his notebook contained so many thousands of names that he was forced to divide it into sections and take up one section a day. There was just so many names and physically he couldn't do it. So he would do one section one day, another section of the dead another time, another depending on how many sections he had. 
It so happened that he fell into a sin. See? Staritz Alexi was a holy person, and maybe that's why St. Theodosius went to him. But in this case, we see that this priest fell into a sin, which threatened him. It was so serious, the, the sin, that by the canons of the church, he had to be defrocked, meaning to lose his priesthood. The matter reached Filaret, the Metropolitan of Moscow, who is now, I believe, canonised by the Russian church. As, uh, so this happened around the late 1800s, I think he was around. As the Metropolitan was about to sign a resolution, uh, like an order, stating that this priest should be removed from his priesthood, that's it, he's no longer going to be a priest, he, was, he wanted to sign, he felt suddenly his hand grew heavy. In other words, his hand block became like paralysed. He thus postponed signing the document until the following day. That night, he dreamt of seeing a great crowd assemble under his windows. In the crowd, there were people of all ages and walks of life. The crowd was agitated and finally addressed to the Metropolitan some kind of plea. And the bishop said, what do you need and who are you? We are departed souls and have come to you to plead for our priest. Do not remove him from his office. Do not remove him from the priesthood. Remember that souls cannot communicate with the living according to Orthodox teaching unless God permits it. While with these psychics, mediums, they communicate with the dead as they believe when they feel like it. So as we said last time, when John Edwards feels like it, he can communicate with the dead supposedly. Our orthodoxy doesn't say that. Only if God permits it and only if it's something important, something either for the soul or something which is important and beneficial for the person that they are appearing to and usually to change their lives, etc. to repent and become pious orthodox Christians. So anyway, these, these people appeared and they said, don't do it. Philaret, greatly impressed by this dream, was unable to forget it after he woke up. He had the accused priest brought before him. When the priest came, the Metropolitan asked him, what good deeds have you done? Tell me. And the priest answered, none, your eminence. I deserve to be punished. At least there's um, humility there. Today... A priest is not allowed just about to give even a penance. So if someone confesses, it's basically the deal is I'll confess my sin but you're not allowed to say hardly anything to me and you're not allowed to give me a penance. You're not allowed to tell me to do prostrations or fasting or things like that. That's the stage it's got to. But there are still priests around who do understand the importance of penance. But it depends on each person. If a person doesn't want to be given a penance, that's their business. It means that they're not really interested in the salvation of their soul. Without penances, it's very difficult to fight and be rid of sin and to acquire a deeper repentance. But that's the state of today. But anyway, this priest said to the bishop, I deserve to be punished. I deserve to be defrocked. 
And that's embarrassing as well for someone to know that he's been a priest and suddenly he's not a priest anymore. The Metropolitan said, do you pray for the departed? Do you pray for the dead? Asked the Metropolitan. And then the, the priest said, why, yes, your eminence, always. It is a rule with me always to remember all whose names are handed to me and I always take out parts of the prosphora during the proscomidi for all of them so that, so that my parishioners have begun complaining that my proscomidi, I think that's how you say it in Russian, is that how you say it, proscomidia? And proscomidi in Greek is... That's where the priest prepares and commemorates on the side. If the altar's here, the altar's here, on this side over here, there's a table where the priest prepares the gifts and commemorates the names of the living and the dead. And his rule was to take out particles from the prosphoro, which were later on going to the chalice. And at that time when these particles of, of all these names had been commemorated, when it goes into the, the, the blood of Christ then at that time those souls commune spiritually. And the parishioners are complaining that I take too long. They even said, your proskomidi takes longer than the liturgy and the liturgy takes around sometimes two hours. So you're there for two hours and then you do liturgy for two hours. It's too long, we can't take it. The Metropolitan limited himself to transferring the priest to another parish. He says, I'm not going to defrock you. I'm just going to transfer you to another parish. Having first explained to him all what happened, how the dead appeared to him, etc., etc., what happened. So I, as a priest, I find that extremely moving. Now, some of you might say, what's that got to do with us in one way as well? Because we're not priests, so we don't commemorate. But that's silly because the names the priest gives comes from the people. This should show us that we should be given names for commemoration of the dead. Like the dead appeared to the Metropolitan and asked mercy for this priest who was commemorating them, the same thing will occur for all Orthodox Christians who remember the dead, that it will be many of the dead who will, for us, ask God for mercy for our souls. So that's very beneficial to commemorate the dead. Now we go to another little section here, which is from um, Elder Ephraim of Katunakia. Elder Ephraim was a spiritual child of Elder Joseph of Manathos. And Elder Joseph, we know, produced great fathers. Many of his monks became abbots. One of the spiritual children of Elder Joseph is Elder Haralambos, which was the abbot of the Nisio Monastery. And another one was Elder Ephraim, who is the one in America who has established 18 monasteries in America and Canada. He also was in charge of around another 10 or something in Greece. See, and then we have another elder that came under Elder Joseph, another Joseph with the same name. He was the spiritual father of the monastery Manathos Vatopedi. And then we've got Elder Ephraim as well, another Elder Ephraim, who didn't live with Elder Joseph, which we'll see later on, but was under his direction. One monk, one simple monk, he wasn't even a priest from Mount Athos, produced so many great figures of the church. Now, Elder Ephraim, who died around the 1980s, 90s, I can't remember, he said the following, when you celebrate the liturgy, you must keep in mind that you are a mediator, like I said before, and that you remove pain, tears, illness, and you lead them to the throne of God. 
You also bring consolation, cure, or whatever each one has need of. God has rendered you a great office. So Elder Ephraim, who was a priest, is speaking to other priests and he's saying that what you have is a great, great thing. Always remember, and I want you people to remember this, always remember that God's ear is the mouth of a priest. In other words, what the priest says goes to God. Remember that when Christ healed the ten lepers, as we read in the Gospel, and one came back to say thank you, what did Christ say to him? Go to the priest and show yourself so that you can get the paper saying that you have been cured, even though he's God. But yet he said to the person, go to the priest, showing that God is the head of the priesthood, that he established the priesthood, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, here's a, uh, then it says here, just one more thing, the the Petrahili, which is what the priest wears when he does confession, the the long thing, the Petrahili has great power. In English, I think they call it stole. The Petrahili has great power. It intercedes between fallen man and his father, his creator. In other words, through the Petrahili, that that priest is able to Pray for fallen men, as we all are, including the priests, to be united with God. Therefore, you ought to commemorate as many names as you can, as many as possible. So Father Ephraim, Elder Ephraim, is speaking to the priests and saying, commemorate as many names as possible. Now, then he gave an example during Turkish times. During the times when Greece was overrun by the Turks, Uh, there were many priests going around from place to place. Yet there was a priest who collected names and commemorated them in the liturgy. So the priest would go around different villages and gathering names so he can commemorate the Christians because some villages didn't have priests. The Turkish authority there, the officer, heard about this and he thought to himself, this priest is gathering names so that he can uh, cause a rebellion. The Turks were always scared that the Greeks or other countries which were under them, the Serbs as well, that they would rebel. And any time that they were paranoid, which is why that's that's one of the reasons why they killed a lot of those Armenians, was because they were paranoid that the Armenians were going to help the Russians. They thought the Russians were going to come down during that time, whatever it was, beginning of the 20th century, that the Russians were going to come down and the Armenians were going to help. So they decided just to get rid of the Armenians. They also slaughtered the Greeks as well down in Asia Minor. Thousands and thousands of Greeks because of their paranoia and things like that. They actually thought they were going to hold all these countries in their hands forever. And so when they would see a priest collecting names, they go, oh, he's, he's collecting names. They're, they're, they're going to do something. So the priest, he heard about it. The priest is trying to incite immunity. So he arrested the priest. However, that very night, the Turkish officer dreamed of all those people whose names the priest commemorated and they told the officer, this is the, the people, the dead people, listen to us, either you release the priest because he prays for us and gives us comfort, which that word we will we'll analyse more later on, that we said that last time too, but I want to analyse that comfort, or we take your first child. 
release the priest, they said to the Turkish officer, or we will take your first child, obviously with God's permission. This scared the Turk. Despite being the conqueror, he said, go priest, I don't want to lose my child, and he set the priest free. And then Elder Ephraim says, great is the power of the Epetrahili, my child, great power indeed. Thus try to commemorate as many names as you can, as many names as you can commemorate. And that does not mean just the priest. It also means for you people as lay people. You don't have to be a priest. Obviously, that's the priest who does it. You submit names of your dead. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The dead need the commemorations. Why they need it, we'll we'll explain further on. Elder Ephraim goes on to say, why do you think priest Nicholas Planas became a saint? He died around the 19... I don't know, 30s, 40s, I'm not really sure, but he was a modern-day saint and he did the same thing. He would commemorate and commemorate and commemorate for so long that even his parishioners would complain and say, too long, too many commemorations. But Elder Ephraim here is saying, why do you think he became a saint? And he's particularly saying here that his saintliness came from that, that he commemorated thousands and thousands of names. Because that's why God has ordained the priests to commemorate names, to pray for the living and for the dead. I've always been willing to commemorate as many names as possible. The more names you commemorate, the greater the reward from God, says Elder Ephraim. For this is the greatest charity of all, to unify man with God. Through the commemorations, we are uniting man, or or, humans, with God. It is the greatest charity indeed, and you can do that. So that was from the book, Elder Ephraim of Katunakia, not the other Elder Ephraim, but both of them had the same spiritual father, which was Elder Joseph. So if we learn anything from there today, we've learned, one, that the dead find comfort, exactly what this comfort means will go on, that the dead need our, need our help, that the priests should commemorate as many names as possible, and that, in that case, the lay people should submit the names. Always remember the dead. And as the dead appeared and helped the priest in those two occasions, the one that was going to be defrocked and the one that was, was arrested from the Turk, that's the same as for us, for people, lay people, that the dead will also intercede Let's go on now. This time we're going to go to, uh, from the Elder Ephraim of America, the Athenite, Elder Ephraim of America, in his book on spiritual councils. Towards the end, he's got a section there on the liturgy and he's, got, he's written there something about the departed, which is very similar to what we've already read. But because Elder Ephraim's still alive and because what he's describing, he, it just happened maybe a few decades ago, I think it's good for us to read it. So Elder Ephraim writes the following. Do you know how much help the departed seek? Do you know how much help the departed seek? Since there is no repentance after death, which that's, we have to understand that, 
We cannot repent after we've died. Repentance is here. There's no repentance in the next life. That is what God says clearly. There's no repentance in Hades. And as humans, they also departed with stains and blemishes. So Father Ephraim here, Elder Ephraim, is acknowledging that people depart with stains and blemishes, with sins, with wounds, with passions. And since they see that the help of the living greatly assists them to be perfected in final rest, yet they yearn, seek and long for someone to commemorate them. So the dead, our relatives, our parents, grandparents, whatever, they're waiting, wherever they are, for the living, for their relatives, etc., to pray for them and for the church as well. And they long, they, they hope, wherever they are, they, that, they, um, that someone will commemorate them. They also, this is, I like this part, they also long for one of their descendants, one of their relatives, to become a priest or a virtuous Christian a priest or a virtuous, who will care for them. I've also heard that they also um, hope that one of their relatives becomes a monastic, a monk or a nun, because the more a monk or a nun progresses in their spiritual life, the more their prayers become stronger. And when a person, when a monastic has been sanctified to a, you know, to a, to a level, that they begin to pray not only for the world, but they also pray for all their relatives. It just comes out. It just comes from within them. But it's interesting here that he didn't just say that the dead are waiting. They're really waiting for someone to become a priest so as to commemorate them. But they're waiting for even one of their relatives or friends or whatever to become a virtuous Christian a Christian who has an understanding, not a Christian who just celebrates a slava or goes to a name day or maybe communes or maybe confesses here and there and the rest of their life is dead. But what a virtuous Christian is, is a Christian who leads a spiritual life and is conscious of the need to pray for the dead and because of their spirituality, when they do pray for the dead, God listens to them. God doesn't listen just to, just to priests, even though that's the highest. And God doesn't just listen to monks and nuns. God also listens to ordinary people. But a lot of times he doesn't listen to them because people don't take the time to lead spiritual lives. They don't read the Bible. They don't read lives of saints. They don't struggle with their passions. They don't go within themselves to look at their passions and struggle, all these things. And that's why God doesn't listen. God listens to a person who is struggling. Not a perfect person, because no one's perfect. Only God is perfect. But God listens to a person who is struggling, to a person who wants salvation, a person who repents. God listens to those people. Actually, in another book, um, I forgot the the little brown book at the back about memorial prayers, there, that monastic there, Father Benedict, he said, um, the best way to help the dead 
is to repent. Meaning, if, a, say, you've just lost your father or your mother and you want to help them, or your brother, or your sister, or your wife, or whatever, your child, and you want to help them, the best way to help them, apart obviously from the liturgy, but liturgies also need our love when we commemorate the name, but that's another thing we'll talk about. But the best way to help them is to repent, that your life is proper. And if our life, if we've cleared our conscience of our sins and we don't have things burdening us, then God will listen to our prayers more. But when our conscience is burning us and we're saying, and I've done this and I've done that, and we're doing nothing about it, we don't confess it, we don't struggle with it, then God does not listen much to those things. That's why the Holy Fathers say, you want to help the dead? You fix yourself up first, you repent, and then God will listen to your prayers. And those prayers are able, as we saw last time at the talk, are able to get people out of hell. So let's continue. Let me tell you about a vision of a certain bishop which he himself told me. This is not the same as the other one, the Russian one. This is what Elder Frem is describing, a bishop, but a Greek bishop, but a similar story. And this bishop told Elder Frem himself. And he said, Elder Frem said that one day when I was serving with this bishop years ago, he told us that there was a priest who had a drinking problem. He was an alcoholic. And he often got drunk. This was going on for many years. Other than this, the priest was virtuous and pious, but he had that particular fault. And one day, he drank wine as usual and got drunk. And then, before he was fully sober, he went and served liturgy. In other words, he served liturgy while he was still partly drunk. So God allowed an accident to happen, and this is the, the most dread thing for a priest, that he spilled the holy body and blood of the Lord. The poor fellow froze with fear. He obviously knocked the chalice a bit, which is, as I said, this is, the, this is something that priests dread and never to happen. And if that happens, the whole process of the burning that has to be done, you have to burn vestments, you have to, it's just a very, very um, frightening thing. The poor fellow froze with fear, but he also said to himself, the bishop's going to really give me a penance for what I've done. Finally, after he confessed, his bishop told him, go and I will notify you uh, to return and then I'll give you the penance. So as the bishop was all alone, reflecting and pondering, as he picked up his pen to write the decision, same thing as before, but a bit different, he saw, not while he was asleep, but he actually saw, while he was awake, an endless multitude of people of every age, class and, and kind unwind before him like a movie within his mind somehow. The bishop was stunned by this vision but also was overcome with fear. Then all the people together said to him, Your Eminence, don't punish the priest, do not defrock him. Then little by little they disappeared. Afterwards the bishop called the priest to come. The poor priest was terrified thinking about being defrocked, being deposed. The bishop said to him, tell me something. Do you commemorate many names when you saw the liturgy? The priest answered, in the proscomidi, your eminence, I commemorate names for a long time, from kings and emperors down to the last pauper. 
The bishop then said to him, go then and whatever, whenever you serve liturgy, commemorate as many people as you can and take care not to get drunk anymore. You are pardoned. Thereafter, the priest, with the help of God, was delivered from drinking. A similar story on someone who was thinking about, I can't remember fully, but I'll get the, the drift because I read it years ago. There was someone who was saying, I'm not, uh, I think he saw a priest do a sin, and he goes, I can't go to him. I can't go to him now because he's bad and I'm not going to go to him. So one day he was walking along in the forest and he was thirsty and he saw a stream there of water and he drank from that stream and he said, this water is the most beautiful water I've ever drunk. And he, um, he followed the stream to see where the stream came from. So he was walking, 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 looking for the source of this creek, whatever it was. And what did he come across? He came across a dead dog and out of the dead dog's um, mouth was the water coming, which, was, which happened as allowance by God. And he was disgusted that he drank water which came out of the dead dog's mouth. And then either God or an angel, I can't remember the story, said to him, a priest can have sins, but he's still a priest unless he's been defrocked. St. John Chrysostom says the same. A priest is a priest until he's defrocked. A bishop is a bishop until he's defrocked. The other day, I've never had this happen to me, I had an attack of gout. I used to read that some people used to have gout, and I used to say, oh, they had gout. You know, when we read things, oh, they had uh, migraines. You know, unless you've really suffered from them, you kind of say, oh, he had migraines. But those of you who have suffered from migraines, you don't just say, oh, it's a migraine. It's horrible. Well, gout is like an arthritis. I don't know what it is, but it actually hits you. And it hit me in my leg to such a point that I couldn't walk. Now, why am I saying it? So you can feel sorry for me. Not necessary. I want to tell you the story. And the pain was excruciating. It was the worst pain I've ever experienced. And then later on I found out because um, one of the fathers went to the fish shop and they said, oh, how's, they asked how I was. They go, oh, he had gout. The woman goes to the fish shop, Greek lady. My husband's got gout too. Oh, when he gets it, he's crying from the pain. And I cry with him because it is really a very, very bad pain. So you got the story so far. People are saying, well... Get on with the spiritual things. I'm not interested in your gout and your foot. Um, but you will be interested. And then what happened was that I couldn't take the pain. And two thoughts came to me at that time. One was if I was dying at this moment in such pain, because some people say, oh, I'll die, I'll repent on my deathbed. I said to myself, there's no way I can even think think about my sins or repent if I was dying at this moment because the pain's so bad. That's why we always got to be ready. Don't think oh, on, we'll, we'll, on the deathbed, you know, when you're full of pain or you're sedated, full of drugs. That's why the Holy Fathers of Manathos pray and say, let me die with my, with my mind alert, not to be zonked out of it like they are in the world where they give them antidepressants and very strong painkillers where the person's out of it. Of course, sometimes you, they are, it's beyond because the, the pain's so bad. But I've also heard that some people say, I don't want that much. I want to be conscious. So they bear a bit with the pain. They don't want to be zombies. 
But the other thing was that I couldn't take the pain and the Panadols weren't working. So I had to get something more powerful. So I rang up the doctor. Now, I avoid doctors for a number of reasons. One of them, my conscience bothers me. That's me personally. That's just mine. I really find it disturbing that they sign for abortions. It just disturbs me. And I go there and, oh, hello, how are you? Good morning. When I, you know, maybe a minute ago, the person could have, woman could have come in and go, oh, I'm so depressed and I'm pregnant. He goes, oh, I have an abortion. So he's responsible for all these abortions and it dis- disturbs me. But unfortunately, you've got to go sometimes. So anyway, so this, this pain was so bad that I had to humble myself and ring up the doctor and say, look, I can't take this. He goes, oh, it sounds like gout. He goes, get someone to pick it up. And he gave me some really strong... Actually, I brought it just in case because I'm scared it's going to flare up tonight. It's called Oxy, Oxycontin or something. One of those anyway. They're very powerful drugs. What I'm trying to say is this. No one else would be able to give me that um, tablet. No one else. Only the doctor. And I've given an example of bad teachers. The person's going to sign to get your school certificate or high school certificate, could have committed adultery, could have committed whatever. But the thing is, without his signature, because he's still a school teacher, you can't get it. Without the doctor's signature, you can't get your, um, these pills, whatever they are, these heavy painkillers. The same as the priest. The priest, as St. John Christmas says, even if he sinned, obviously he's not, he, should, he should be struggling not to, but even if he sinned and whether he, we can say that like the dog there that, 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 that the beautiful water's coming out, that's the same. Yes, some priests are filthy and we all sin and we all got passions, but from the priests, from the priests full of the, the, the passions, it would be great to have holy priests, but anyway, the point is that from this priest comes the grace of God and that only can be given by the priest just like we can have the doctor. We need the doctor, whether how bad they are, whatever they do, only they can give us the prescriptions and teachers and whatever else exists in this, in this um, world. So that story there we saw that this priest was actually a virtuous priest but he had a drinking problem and we have to be very careful because we might see a fault in a priest, maybe a, a fault that he's got, which maybe God's allowed to for his own humility, and we might judge that priest, oh, look, he's angry, or look at this, look at that. But still for that priest, as it said there, to be virtuous, yes, he's a drunk, but still virtuous. Remember that story that I said to you um, a couple of years ago of um, uh, a monk was going along in Mount Athos and he heard some commotion and he went somewhere in the forest there and he saw these couple of monks that had fallen into a ditch and they couldn't get out because they were drunk. And he said to himself, oh, truly, you know, they are pigs, something like that. He, he judged them and said, what, what pigs they are, something like that. And then he heard a voice, which was the mother of God, yes, they are pigs, but they're my pigs, meaning that, that God is long-suffering and he endures with our passions. Yes, they were drunk or that person was a drunk. But we've all got passions. And today with the publican and Pharisee, we saw that the, one of them, the Pharisee was saying, I'm not like him. I'm not like that tax collector. When we speak like that, it means that we don't have knowledge of ourselves. It means that we're not leading spiritual lives. So be careful that we don't label a priest as being completely a write-off 
when really he could be having uh, some passion. I remember, I won't say, so you won't, um, there was a priest in here in Australia decades ago who had some type of health problem. So he used to drink, I don't know what it was, exactly what he had, but something to do with, with, him, with his chest or something. And he used to drink, I think, uh, some type of alcohol or whiskey or I don't know what it was, to actually help him somehow. I think it opened up. I'm not, can't, I don't know exactly what it was, but that's what he did. And later on, because of that couldn't breathe or whatever the problem he had, he used to drink a bit more often and often until he became addicted. Became addicted. But later on, I, I was told that story, but later on I found out that that priest was one of the holiest priests in Australia. I won't say who, but was one of the holiest priests in Australia. He was a man of prayer, but he had that problem, which happened for whatever reason. We have saints that were in the desert, great holy fathers that lived in the desert. And God allowed, not that he made them to fall, but he allowed a temptation he allowed them to have a temptation of a sexual nature, say. And this great father, for example, fell into a, a, a sin. And he was devastated from what happened, but then he turned to God and he gained even more humility than what he had from before he fell and he became holier than what he was before he fell. Our understanding of spirituality is what's called warped. Well, you can imagine spiritually our brains that what's at the back here is at the front and what's on the sides over here and up, down, etc. In other words, our brains are twisted, means our spiritual understanding is twisted and what we think is right is wrong and what's wrong is right. Well, whatever. You understand what I'm saying? Some people might say, okay, well, look at those examples that you just said. A, dr a drunken priest, the monk in the desert fell into something bad, etc., and then that they were still, by God, accepted and whatever. You know, remember these people repented. So St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, he writes a little story here. He says it's a fearful story and it's written for those who believe that, oh, well, we can sin and we just confess later. Or, as the person told me two months ago, does that mean we can sin and then we wait for someone to commemorate us? It's two different examples, but similar. Let's sin and then live it up a bit in this life, don't struggle too much, and then uh, my wife will pray for me when I die. Or the other example is, I'm going to go and confess now, so I've got my list of sins, so when I do a couple of more since I'm going to confess anyway, and that is a common thing which I think we are all tempted to do if not do. A certain man, young man's heart was chained or bound by his love affair and relations with a harlot. Now, whether St Nicodemus means that she was a prostitute or whether he means she was a woman who was um, sexually active or whatever and he might call her a harlot, I'm not sure because some of the fathers used to call women who, who, who live that type of life, harlots anyway. So I'm not sure whether she was a prostitute or just a woman who was like that. 
Having been exceedingly reproved by his parents, so his parents told him off, his relatives told off this young man, and his spiritual father said to him, to be decided to break off these relations and be delivered from this sin by making a general and complete confession of all his sins. Stop there. Now, please, that, that, don't misunderstand that as meaning that every time we do a big sin, which people say to me, goes, can I confess and I want to say all my sins from the beginning? And then one, one year later, then they fall again and they say, I want to confess all my sins from the beginning and continually this uh, perfectionist thing, which is, I want to start again, which is stupid. We confess from the last time we confessed. We, start, we say our sins from the last time. Not again, back again. So he, that's what he means. He means that he wants to confess his sins from the um, uh, last, from his last time that he confessed. Compiling all his sins, he wrote down them on a piece of paper. During this self-examination of his sins, however, he did not have the proper grief and contrition in his heart that those who recall their sins in preparation for confession should have. This is a problem where St. Nicodemus in his book on confession, which is at the back there, he actually speaks a lot about that when we confess, we do not confess with true repentance. We just confess. A lot of times we don't make a true decision and say, I'm never going to do this sin again and struggle really hard not to do it and have pain and have tears. And a lot of times we don't have that. And this person never had it. So let's see what happens because he didn't have it. During this self-examination there, so rather his sins grieved him so little, say basically didn't really care that much, but he, he went anyway. Some people have a psychological need to go and confess. We've said this before in other talks. Um, so his contrition, his repentance was weak. And as he was going towards the priest, he went past the harlot's house, as, his, as the Saint Nicodemus says, as if he was a stranger. He was roused to enter therein again. And when he entered, he decided to fall into sin and add this to his old sins, another new sin, with the hope that he would confess all his sins basically altogether. And don't think that this is not common. Not common. Don't think that we say, oh, when we know we're going to sin, we're going to say, oh, why don't I go on the internet or let's have a look. I'm going to confess that I went on the internet and saw some inappropriate things. You know, I'm not going to say to the priest how many times because I don't remember. might be 20 or 30. Why don't we add another one and just say in general? But really, if we do that, we should confess as follows. We say, I, um, I, had, I had fallen in on that quite a number of times, but then I had the thought. This is how we have to be clear. But when I had the thought that to come and confess... I decided to do it again and just to add it onto the list. That's how we get rid of this passion. And you might say, oh, that's so embarrassing and this and that. That's how we get rid of the sin. We don't add it on. Don't play with God, all of us. I'm talking about myself, all of, all of us. Don't play with God because we'll see now. God cannot be mocked. So... He, but what followed? Just as he was contemplating this evil thought as an excuse to fornicate, another young lover of the harlot came in and saw the other man and became angry, probably jealous, whatever, struck him with such a blow and killed him. And when the people were taking his body to burial, they found the paper upon which he had listed his sins in preparation for confession. 
And then St. Nicodemus says, O miserable death, O false hopes, O most deceitful thoughts of the young man, of that young man. Now, brother, St. Nicodemus is speaking to us. If you are so audacious like that thrice wretched young man so as to wrong God and intentionally sin with the hope of forgiveness, come to your senses, I beg you, so that it may not happen that you also suffer punishment and perdition like to lose your soul like him. So that's what's called a fearful story. And I believe that a lot of us are guilty of that because our repentance is really, really shallow. And what's worse is when a person makes a shallow confession and walks up with their head up high, similar to the that what we read in the parable of the uh, Pharisee, walks off and then communes and says and waits for people to say, oh, congratulations that you had communion and things like that, when it's like a Pharisaic thing. Now, who is that? That's none of our business. It's not here to say, oh, he communed like a Pharisee and he didn't. That's all. Why I'm telling you this is so that we can look at ourselves, not others. Look to see, are we Pharisees? Now we come to the stage and we ask, when we do these panahitas, when we do these memorial prayers for the dead, what are we actually praying for? A lot of you go to the priest and say, oh, can you do a panahita? Or when it's Soul Saturday, you come with your wheat, the koliva, and the priest does the, the memorial prayer where the priest sings with the choir, the priest says, Give rest, O Lord, to the souls of thy servants who have fallen asleep. And the choir replies, Give rest, O Lord, to the souls of thy servants who have fallen asleep. Glory to the Father, etc. So I'm going to tell you a little secret because I believe I was to some degree confused. What are we praying for? Where are these people? When we're not sure of something, we look up the services and the writings of the saints, which I'm going to do. Let's first study the service a little bit and let's see what it says. It says, that in, like in the Great Litany for the Departed, one prayer says um, that he will pardon them their every transgression, both voluntary and involuntary, that let us pray to the Lord, that God will forgive them, the dead, of their sins, voluntary and involuntary. What does that mean? Well, why should they be asked? Why should we ask forgiveness of God for them? That means that they, these sins that we're asking God to forgive were not confessed. Let's go on and says that He will release them. Who's them? The dead. That He will release them from all sickness, sorrow, and sighing, like like sighing. That's what, that's, that's what it's saying. And settle them where the light of God's countenance shall visit them. So in other words, the prayers are saying that the people we're praying for need forgiveness of sins, but not only that, that we are praying that they be released from sickness, sorrow and sighing. See, do we actually pick these things up as we listen to them? Well, most of the time we don't because it's another language. And even if it's in English... People don't pick it up. That they may stand uncondemned before the dread throne of the Lord of glory. Let us pray to the Lord. 
Now, the saints we know are at the throne of God, like we heard about Saint Theodosius of Chernogov, whatever, where he says, where the, where the starrets are, Lexi said, but you stand at the throne of God. But these people don't stand at the throne of God. So obviously, it must mean that, what? Where are they? Let's not say where they are. Where are they not? Well, let's read on. Also, the priest says, for them that mourn and grieve, who look for the consolation of Christ, who's for them that mourn and grieve? For the people that are alive, for the people that are, are there standing at these panahitas, at these mourners, who are praying for their dead, that God gives them consolation because they mourn and grieve. They're sad. They're crying. Why are they sad and why are they crying? We have to look at that soon. St. Nicodemus will tell us. Then we sing at the Kentuckian for the dead. It says, with the saints, grant rest, O Christ, to the souls of thy servants. Grant rest. If we're asking for them to be given rest, that means that what? They're not in a state of blessed repose. We never pray and say, O Christ, grant rest to your saint. When we do Koliva like I did today, for Saint Sava of Serbia, that wasn't for the dead. The wheat that was down, the Koliva that I did today, was for the saint. There was no reference in there that the saint be forgiven his sins. There was no reference in there that the saint be delivered, released from sorrow, pain and crying and things like that. No reference to that. Yes, we offer wheat to the dead, but we also offer wheat to the saints. But there's a difference. For the saints, we are asking for their help. But when we pray for the dead, we are asking for God to help them. There's a difference. Today, the wheat that you ate, those who ate it, was not for the dead. There is a reference in that prayer which says, and for those who have died, etc., etc. And some people believe that that, and I used to get confused, I go, why are we praying for the dead during a prayer that's for the saint? And then I read in Saint Nicod- by St. Nicodemus that he said, that what you're praying for is not for the dead. Your, your, those are for all those that have been saved. Those righteous souls that have departed this life, not the other souls. So we have to be careful of that. Then the service goes on. The choir of the saints have found the fountain of life. The saints have found the fountain of life and the door of paradise. They've entered paradise. But may I also find the way through repentance. I am the sheep that was lost. Call me, call me up to thee, O Saviour, and save me. This is in reference to the, the soul. It's like the soul saying this, the departed soul. Sometimes the prayers are written in such a way where it's, the, it's like the soul, during the funeral service, the soul says, sorry, the choir is saying, on behalf of the person, of the soul, where is my money? It's all vanity. It's all for nothing. There's no one to help me. I look to my relatives, but they can't see me. They can't. There's all these references as if the soul is speaking, that the soul is in distress. Give rest, O God, to the souls of thy servants and appoint for them a place in paradise. Give them a place in paradise where the choirs of the saints, O Lord, and the just will shine forth like stars. To thy servants that are sleeping now, give rest, overlooking all their offences. So 
They are granted rest if God forgives them their sins. But half an hour ago, if not 40 minutes ago, I said there is no repentance in, in the next life, only here. But we're not, we're not saying that they're repenting. We're saying that God forgives them because he can. He can forgive them automatically. If God has the power to forgive, ask me whatever you ask in my name, I will give it. This is what the fathers of the church say. So we're not, we're not saying that these souls are repenting because they can't. They are granted through God's love for mankind and the people left behind who are praying for them with love that God simply forgive them and through that forgiveness for them to be granted rest and through that rest to receive paradise. This is what... I'll go on a little bit more. With the spirits of the righteous made perfect in faith, give rest, O Lord, to the souls of thy servants and preserve them in that life of blessedness. So with the spirits of the righteous, who are the righteous? They are the saved. They are the saints. So we're saying those souls who have been saved, we want the souls of the departed to be with them in that life of blessedness that is lived with thee, a friend of man. In the place of thy rest, O Lord, where all the saints repose. So we're saying, in that place where all the saints are, give rest also to the souls of thy servants, for thou alone are immortal. So those souls are not in paradise. And one, another one, that our God who descended into Hades to loose the pains of death, that they that were there, give rest also to the souls of thy servants, O Saviour. And then there is a prayer which the priest does. It's a prayer that's done for the dead. It's the one that the priest is supposed to do with all his heart. It says, O God of spirits and of all flesh, who has trampled down death and overthrown the devil. So the priest is saying, you who has trampled down death, you have you've destroyed death and overthrown the devil. Only Christ had the power to overthrow the devil as God. Not like some silly Greeks I've heard say, oh, there, yeah, we believe in demons, they, they, they exist because even Christ was scared. That's the, the brain that said that's been deformed. And given life to thy world, do thou the same Lord give rest to the souls of thy departed servants, names, you, in other words, we're saying, you, O oh God, you only can give rest. No one else. You give rest to the souls of thy departed servants in a place of brightness, in a place of refreshment, in a place of repose where there is no sickness, there is no sorrow, there is no crying, sighing, etc. All that's gone. In heaven, there is none of that. Pardon every transgression, but how are they going to get there? The priest goes on, pardon every transgression which they have committed, whether by word, deed or thought, to receive this repose in a place of brightness, a repose, etc., where there's no pain and all that. They have to be forgiven their sins. For thou art the good God, lovest mankind, for there's no man who shall live and sin not. See what the priest is saying? There's no man who lives who sins not. Please understand, the priest is saying, that you are the only one without sin. Everyone else has got sins. Be merciful to this soul who died with sins. 
and thy righteousness everlasting righteousness, and thy word is truth. That is part of the great litany for the, sorry, for the um, memorial prayer for the dead. We have established that when St. Theodosius appeared to the priest and was asking for commemoration for his parents, priest Nikita and Maria, it means that if they were saved, he wouldn't be asking for prayers for them in the way that we pray for the dead. So from that, we understand that the parents of St. Theodosius did not reach paradise. Where they went is another question. Catholics have a theory of where they go. They say purgatory. We'll go through that later on. But what does the Orthodox say? Because whatever the Catholics say is, and I'm not saying this in a hateful way, people are going to say, oh, you know, you're breeding hate. I don't breed hate. I tell you one thing, I will teach you hate for one thing. You can hate their teachings, which are false and have distorted much of the world today, like from the Roman Catholics came Protestantism and from them came everything else. And you can hate not the Pope. You can hate the institution, the whole idea of papism, that the Pope is the head of the church. That you can hate. That's a heresy. That the Pope has no fault, that you can hate. You can hate all their teachings about the mother of God, what they've done where they wasn't enough the way it was always taught by the church, by the Third Ecumenical Council, to venerate the mother of God like I have in my curse group books, by the way, if anyone hasn't got that. They can get one for free later on. Um, in there we put a section on there on what the church teaches about the mother of God, that she's Theotokos, that she gave birth to God and man, etc. That wasn't enough for them. They wanted to raise her up higher. So they said, well, let's make it just about God. So they say when they do their five fingers in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, that's how we do it, Trinity, they don't, they, they don't do that. They say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and of the Mother of God and of the Pope. And they do believe that the Pope is God on earth, basically, Christ on earth and all these things that they teach. So, yes, you can hate that, but not the person. And you never teach your young children these things because that's fanaticism. Jews do it, Muslims do it, Orthodox do it. Look at this thing, this friction between this, um, with the open tennis thing of Croatians and Serbians, like the hate. Why? Because they've been pumped from young to hate the other people. You don't teach little children these things. They don't understand. You don't go past a, a church which is a heterodox church and go, oh, yucky church, oh, they're devils. Oh, look at the devil on their, on their bell tower. Oh, the, the Catholics are ringing the bell. Uh, it's really the devil he's ringing it. And all this stupidity that people say to their kids and teach fanaticism and make the children to hate, like those individuals in the southern states of um, America where they were taught from young to hate the blacks, from young, basically day one. That's fanaticism. So the Catholics have so many incorrect things and you have to be aware of it because their influence is great. All this ecumenism, all these things. The Catholic Church is in ecumenism not because it wants to find the truth but it wants everyone to be under them. So be very, very careful and that's why as time goes on, God willing, 
we will go through this, but I'm not teaching hate for them because there are many fine people and actually, I'll tell you a little secret, that on, on the last day, as we've read in the Plies of Saints, that there'll be many orthodox in hell, lower, down, in other words, if it's such a thing as a place, but one just to get, to get the idea, will be deeper in hell than a lot of the heterodox who did not know some people or whatever. I'm not saying all the heterodox are going to go to hell. That's not my business. What I'm saying is that those who did evil could be higher up, less suffering than a lot of orthodox because we know they don't. A lot of those people don't know. So now we come to our break in a few minutes. So have anyone got any questions? We're coming to... Um, I think we're progressing on. So the point is, where are these souls? And the most important thing is they're not in paradise and we're praying for them to go to paradise. Are there any questions? Yes? Um, I have two questions. Um, number one, when my mother died, my parents had all her religious um, things and, and her commemoration book. So there's a whole list of people that she commemorated um, in church over here. Um, now, she knew who they were. I don't know who these people are. There are names there that I, I don't even know who these people are. Should I still commemorate the names as names or should we actually know those people? That's a, that's a good question. Um, the Strictly speaking... When, we are, when a person comes to me with a name and says, oh, can you pray for this person? And a lot of times they're quite dead about it. They don't really feel what they're saying. They just do it as a duty. A lot of times I even forget. I forget that they even told me the name. I think sometimes God permits that because they, the way they asked was not right. However, there are people who say, can you please pray for my mother? You know, please, please, Father, pray for my mother. And you can see that they've got faith and they really feel it. I don't forget that uh, people have done that with me and still to this day there are names that I comes to my mind when I'm serving, names that people told me from uh, 10, 15 years ago. It just comes like that because of the faith that they came. Now, it's true that when even myself as a priest, when I commemorate names, it's different when you don't know someone. The more we progress spiritually, the more we begin to, pray, we begin to have love even for those that we don't know, such that we read the lives of saints where many of the Holy Fathers would pray for all Orthodox Christians, wherever they are, and all those that are in, that are, that are in wherever they are, the ones that, that, didn't, that weren't saved, will come to where they are later on. And even we read in the lives of saints that some saints were so full of love that they prayed for all those in Hades, even for those who will not be able to be saved. So that thing that you're saying is there is a large factor which, which should be from our heart. I believe that as time goes on, as the Orthodox Christian begins to progress, and especially a lot of you will be quite affected after this talk, and the more you read books about the matter, the more you will begin to see the urgency to pray for these people and to say to yourself, I don't want anyone to be there. So when you have names, you say, I don't know them, but they're individuals. 
This is when someone progresses more. I'm not saying that you're not progressed. I'm saying this is the way. The, the, I don't know where you are. I'm just saying the development. When someone develops more, then they begin, doesn't matter who the names are, they go, this person could be in need. This person, um, uh, well, sorry, this person is in need. This person needs prayer. This person is in grief. This person has sorrow. So therefore, but that comes when we're more progressed. Now, the question to you is that it depends on your heart and your understanding of the concept of the praying for the dead. If you understand it to a larger extent, you will commemorate them. If you don't at this time, you may leave it for a while, but as time goes on, you may refer back to your mother's book and commemorate. It depends on yourself. Uh, I can say to you, it's better to do it. Uh, and perhaps you will start to do it and you'll begin to feel and go, no, this is a good idea, what I'm doing. It, a lot of it depends on your love your spirituality of understanding of where those souls are and things like that. So um, did you understand that question? Basically, I'm just asking, should I put all those names on my commemoration list and, and just continue it? So in other words, it just continues through the generations. It's up to you. To me, all names that are commemorated for the dead are useful, but I can say to everyone now, I want you to do to put, to put your names in this. But I don't want it to be just like that. I want it to come from the heart. If in your heart you feel that, then you do that. And that will be good for your soul and it will be also good for those souls who you will be commemorating. Um, and I just wanted to ask another question. What happens, how do we, I know we're not allowed to interpret dreams, but people will talk about, oh, I saw my departed mother, I saw my departed father in a dream. And the That's another good question which can lead to nice things. Um, in st strictly speaking, we don't believe, we don't trust any dreams because we don't have the discernment to know was it from God or was it from the devil? Is the devil making these things and then making things come true perhaps also and then start to make us have confidence in dreams? That's why all the saints rejected dreams. When you reject dreams and even if it is from God, you're not punished because God uh, is pleased with people who are taking care not to be deceived. It's hard. We have examples that I went through today, but these examples are from holy people and they are offered to the church and a lot of times the church, you know, accepts them within their tradition. Uh, but they are pure souls, souls who are so much illumined by God that they have the discernment to know whether the dream was from God or the devil. We don't have that. I always tell people to reject all dreams. However, if a person sees that, I would prefer, instead of saying, oh, that's your mother asking for prayers or that's your father, whatever, I prefer just to say, well, um, just forget about whether it was that person or not. That's not important. What's important is, do you commemorate, by the way, you're living, do you commemorate this person in, in the thing? They say, no. We'll say, well, why don't you use this opportunity as a way to do it? Because a lot of times dreams are just our own thoughts during the day. Someone, like I had a dream the other day and I said, where did that one come from? And then I remembered I discussed that with someone the night before 
and then all of a sudden it came there, you know. So that's all dreams are. There are some times that we read in the last talk, talk 28, that we had a lot of examples of dreams and visions and things like that. But this, was, this has been accepted by the church. But we can't have every single person coming up with these dreams because there are not even any holy fathers with the gift of discernment to actually be able to say, now say, this person has a dream and says, what's it from? Um, I don't know. And this person comes up to me and goes, I don't know, I'm not, I don't have that discernment, that gift from God because my soul has not been purified like they all, those, those saints. So the best is reject all dreams, believe no dreams, because if you start believing dreams, it will make you go lulu where you start to believe this and believe that, and then, then the demons start playing around. They start saying, um, you know, oh, that, that dream means this and that dream means that, and makes the person go, can go into schizophrenia. So it's better to ignore all that. And the main rule is commemorate your, your debt. We're coming to that after the break about that. It's a good question, yeah. What about, um, say, you had grandparents and but they didn't go to church? Should you still commemorate, or is that wrong? The same as this uh, uh, this lady here. Your name was mm. Anna. The same as what Anna said, which is. Um, it depends on the person's spiritual condition. If a person is not even taking care of their own souls and they don't have mercy on hardly anyone around them, and why, then in a way it kind of says, well, why would they care about their grandparents in the first place? And if they put them in, they'll probably forget about it later on. Um, however, if a person starts to progress spiritually, then he starts seeing the need. My grandparents need. They need help. I don't know them, but they need help. All the souls need help. When I die, I'm going to need help. Am I going to die, save them? Am I going to make it? And when I die, I'm going to want people to commemorate me as well. So, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, depends on the spiritual condition, the spiritual level of the person. As I said, one saint became so great in his holiness, which is exceptional. We're not, we are not commanded to do and don't do it. But this saint, his love, his, he was so much full of the Holy Spirit that he began to pray and for the devil and say that he felt sorry for the devil because the devils had been and say that the, like how stupid of him that, he's, that he lost himself because of his pride and he felt sorry. This is exceptional. Exceptional. We're not commanded to do that. There's no reference in the church, in the church books or prayers to pray for the devil. These are exceptions. But I'm just trying to say this person was so full of the Holy Spirit that he even went to that level. Okay. So it depends on our spiritual level. Okay, let's, um, with God's help, continue on this very important topic. A few people have said that they're kind of thinking now after hearing what I've been saying thinking about and saying, well, that is true. Where are the souls? And it's interesting that a lot of people didn't really know that when we're praying for these souls, we're asking for their forgiveness and that they be given repose, etc., etc. that they are not in paradise. So let's go on and let's see what some other of the fathers say. And I want to say something to you. When we are examining a topic... 
I want to give you an I want to give you some advice, and the advice is, we should read different sources. We read modern day uh, spiritual fathers, and and we read some from a few centuries ago. Then we read some of many centuries ago, etc., so that we can have an idea. Because one saint somewhere might say something. And if that is not being said by other fathers of the church during all the centuries in different places in the world, then we cannot really consider it orthodox unless what that one person has said has been accepted by the entire church. So what do I mean by that? This topic, for example, I am going to read uh, from... St. John Chrysostom, St. John of Damascus, St. Nicodemus that lived a few hundred years ago, St. Elder Favelos of Serbia who died a few years ago, St. Mark of Ephesus which lived in the 15th century, I think if I remember right. We read from Elder Ephraim and all these people. So we're reading from a whole variety of church fathers, from the writings, over all the centuries of the church. Remember what I said to you years, uh, about a year and a while ago, if I can remember right. We, what is orthodox is what is believed by all, everywhere, at all times. That's what's orthodox and that's what I'm trying to do, to, to do today. So, St John Damascus says, God very much wants us to be kind-hearted, and compassionate towards one another, both while we are alive and even after death. So we pray for not only the living, but for the dead. So then we go to St John Chrysostom, another great saint. Remember, the mouth of Christ is St Paul, and the mouth of St Paul is St John Chrysostom. When St John Chrysostom speaks, it's as if St Paul's speaking. And when St. Paul speaks, it's as if Christ is speaking. These are authorities. These are great fathers of the church. When we, when we hear St. John Chrysostom, we stand at attention. St. John Chrysostom says, The offerings that are performed and the, and the charitable deeds that are done on behalf of the dead are not pointless. The, these have all been ordained by the Holy Spirit, who desires that we should help one another. Those who have passed away help you and you help them. Have no doubt that those who have died are benefited in some way. St. John Chrysostom says when we pray for the dead, when we give alms, money for the, to the poor on, for their souls, they are helped. Exactly how they're helped, he says, they're helped in some way. We don't know who gets released, who doesn't get released, what's happening there, but there is benefit. He goes on, the holy apostles did not prescribe that prayers for the dead should be offered at the time of the Holy Liturgy without reason. It's not for nothing that the This has been from the time of the apostles. The apostles were the ones who taught through their, especially St. James in his divine liturgy, and the, in general the apostles said, pray for the dead. Now the Protestants say there is no repentance, therefore we do not pray for the dead. That's it. What they've, whatever 
whatever has happened while they're on earth, that's the end of it. That's what the Protestants say. Let me give you an example of once um, I was at a name day and before I was a priest, I was a lay person, I was at a name day, St. Basil's. And there was a Greek person there, an elderly, an elderly man, who was boasting and saying that he had this thing that he can talk to heretics, to heterodox, to other religions, and that he, has, that he actually goes and speaks to them. And as he was babbling on there, he actually said that uh, when you speak to uh, Jehovah Witnesses or Protestants, you just use the Bible because that's all they believe. So you use the Bible and through the Bible you teach them about orthodoxy. And then he says, oh, one day I was talking to a um, Baptist, whatever, probably a Greek Baptist because some of them have converted. And he goes, and I was talking to him about memorial prayers for the dead. And he says, well, then this person said in front of everyone, well, when you really boil it all down, he goes, really, memorial prayers are unnecessary because there's no reference to it really in the Bible. So what do you think happened there? Through his pride that he's going to go and, and, and talk to these people about orthodoxy and using only the Bible, he couldn't really show fully, even though there are references to it within the Bible, but it's not as clear as the church teaches, which comes from the tradition. Like there's no reference in the Bible which says uh, to actually do panahitas or do these type of things, but there are references to praying for all and things like that, and the Holy Fathers use that. But he fell into deception because he couldn't really prove it properly from the Bible, so he made a decision that our memorial prayers really aren't necessary. In other words, he fell into deception. He actually thought that he was Mr. Orthodox and yet he just threw away one of the most important traditions of the Orthodox Church. Why should I speak to a Protestant or Jehovah Witness and just use the Bible? What, what, what for? But orthodoxy is not just the Bible. Orthodoxy is the Bible and tradition and the holy apostles, the canons and the ecumenical councils and local councils and the lives of saints and all the things, all together, everything is, not, is orthodoxy. Why should I throw all that away or not use it just so I can explain to the person about icons or about this or about that because they only go with the Bible? And the other thing is, not everyone, as St. Ignatius, the great ascetic bishop of the Russian church, second name, Branch, Branch Ninov, is that right? He said that to speak to those of other faiths is, is given, and to read books, to read their books as well, because you sometimes you have to read their books to know what they teach to help people. He himself says that that's not for everyone. That's a select type of person. For example, myself, if someone says to me, oh, I have a, a Protestant friend or a Catholic friend, can you speak to them? I go, oh, I really, I don't feel that I am in that way. I don't feel that I am 
that I can do that. I can give them some books, but I don't feel like I can sit down and speak to Orthodox people as I'm doing today. That's what I've been doing for decades. But that, does that mean I don't love them? No. It means I just don't have the ability. But there are priests who can read through Jehovah Witness books, who can read through Protestant books, who can read through Catholic books, who can, who can speak to these people and help them. Don't take on yourselves this thing that we've got to go and save the world because like that guy at the, at the name day, he lost himself. And he said the, the, one of the greatest blasphemies to say, well, when you look at it, it's not in the Bible, so I suppose it's not really necessary because he had brainwashed himself to believe only the Bible. By the way, it's the Orthodox Church which said which books of the Bible are canonical. The Orthodox Church put together and said these are the books because there was a lot of epistles of St Peter and there was St Paul and there was St Clement and all these other apostles around. There was false epistles around and all these gospels of other saints and things like that. And the church, the Orthodox church, came together and said, okay, let's look through this. And with God's enlightenment, they said, these are the canonical ones. That's the Bible. But then we've got Mr. Protestant that comes along and says, well, you Orthodox people, you don't care about the Bible and you don't have the Bible as number one and all these silly things. When, what do you mean we don't have the Bible as number one? We're the ones that actually establish which is the Bible. I think St. Seraphim's advice is the best. Save yourself and all those around you will be saved. Don't run around thinking that you're going to save other people when we ourselves are in danger for our own soul. I was talking once to an old calendarist priest, Greek, who belongs to a church which says that every other Orthodox church in the world, it has no grace except for them. And I was speaking to him on the phone and he said to me, from the time that a priest or a bishop prays with heretics, that's it. That's it. It's finished. Finito. And this person was telling me that if a bishop prays with a heretic, that's it. And that they lose grace, that we have to run away from the church, etc. And he said to me, and this is what the canons say, the whole, the, the Rada, which is a special book which has the canons, a person who prays with a heretic, whatever, whatever. He goes through all these canons. And I said to him, that's interesting. Yes, the canons do say that. However, when we read this life of saint, we see that that great saint, even though his bishop was teaching heretical things, he still stayed there. And then we read this, and then we read that, and how come this? And then he was getting all, again, the brain started to go all over the place. And then he said to me at the end, um, I don't know why it says. I go, but he goes, so he said to me, don't you believe in the rut? I go, yes, I believe in the canons of the church. I'm just asking you, how do you balance what the canons say and what we have in tradition. We have some great saints who were even ordained as priests by bishops who held heretical views, but yet they became saints and they were still priests, even though their bishop had heretical views. He goes, oh, oh, um, uh, he said, only the rudder. I said, are you related to the guy that I met at the party? By, you know, like I should have said to him. Are you related to the, the person I met at St. Basil's um, name day where he, um, he said that about the memorial prayers? He said the same thing, only the rudder. 
I only go with what the rudder says. I go, oh, so I said, in other words, we throw away everything else. He goes, only the rudder. This is what's called, what we call like fanaticism, orthodox fanaticism. And that doesn't occur just with them, not just with Protestants, not just with all calendars, but also within the Orthodox Church. When we put ourselves as, as, the, as, the, as the know-all, we can lose our souls to prove our point. In other words, he had egotism. He, had, he was an egoist. If he was humble, he would say, oh, oh, that saint, yeah, he was under a bishop that was heretical. He taught some bad things. I don't know, but I've been taught like this. So you've actually got me questioning. Can I think about it? Show some humility. I actually said to him, show some humility. At the end, the only thing he could say is, I only go with the rudder and throw away all the rest. Is he orthodox? No. Orthodox, orthodoxy is everything. Lives of saints, writings of the Holy Fathers, history of the church, the dogmas of the church, the ecumenical councils, and the, 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 all those things is orthodoxy. Not just the Bible like the guy with the memorial prayers, not just the rudder with the guy who says that he's the only church in the world. Many years ago, another person came to our monastery with a, who was like that as well. He believes that no other Orthodox church in the world exists except his own. Greek fellow. And I forbade the monks to speak to him about those type of things because they're fanatical. He was like, a, he used to deliver some type of um, groceries, like a grocery store. And I never spoke with him because why should I get a headache for? So I just basically avoided him. So one of the monks had a garden. And the garden was actually quite, an, quite vibrant, quite good, and he had a garden too, the old calendars fellow. And I said to the, to the other father, I go, have you noticed, without me being there, not that I'm clairvoyant, I just know, I go, have you noticed when he comes to deliver the packages that he won't look at your garden? He goes, yeah, he even stands with his back to it. And he goes, he goes why, is, why is that? I go, because your garden's better than his. <laughs> because he is an egotist. In other words, when he says that he is the only church in the world which is the true church, that's fueled by ego. That's really ego. And not only that, ready for it? They believe that every, as I said, every Orthodox church is the worst church in the world, except for theirs, that they are the only true believers. Ready for it? They open their shop on Sundays and even Easter Day and Christmas Day. Christmas with the old, of course. Um, but they open them on Christmas Day. And when you ask them that, they don't answer. In other words, their religion is egotistical. They go, oh, but the Holy Fathers used to confess the faith. St. Mark of Ephesus, he went against the entire Orthodox Church and he spoke the truth. He was the only one. And he was called the, the, 
the atlas of, of, of orthodoxy, which means, um, I think it's some Greek thing where Atlas held the whole world, it was like mythology, that he held in his hands, he was the only one which kept the orthodox faith and because of him, orthodoxy was saved of joining with the Catholics at one stage when they were going to join together because the Greeks were saying to the Pope, help us because the Turks are going to take over Constantinople, we can't hold them off anymore. So the Greeks went over to Rome and said, can you help us send some army, send some of your army over to help us? And the Pope said, yes, I will help you if you join with us and you recognise me as the head of the church. So the Greek emperor went over with some bishops and St Mark of Ephesus together and they spoke there and there's all these betrayals and some of the Greek bishops were betraying and go, yes, 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 we believe whatever you believe, just join with us and send your army over. And then St Mark of Ephesus says, no, no, that's heretical. The Orthodox doesn't believe that. And then the bishops signed, all the other bishops, many of them signed, for, um, to join, and when Mark went back, St Mark went back to Constantinople, the people said, you are the great hero of orthodoxy, you are the only one that didn't sign, and they spat on all the other bishops that signed the union. Now, these people, these fanatical people that open up their shops on Christmas Day and Easter and all that, and you can't say a nice thing about a garden, what's the garden got to do with orthodoxy? Maybe because we planted the garden 13 days before his. So, <laughs> then... Um, so therefore, we're heretics because we're, we're too early in planting our seeds. So, what is it? So, what was, what was I saying? The um, oh, and they say, oh, Saint Mark of Ephesus um, was staunch in his belief, and that's what we're doing. No, no, no. They are mistaken when they believe that the saints who stood up for orthodoxy were like them, fanatical unloving, egotists. Yes, St Mark stood up for orthodoxy, but when you went up to him for personal reasons and spat in his face, he would bow his head. He had humility. He had love. When he spoke, he spoke out of love. You go up to these people, and, say, and, and it's true, you say anything to them, like I once when I was in a train... When, before, when I, was, when I was a teacher and I was going to school to, te- to teach and I used to catch the train, and I'm reading my book there and another one of those people came up, um, and I, one of those old calendars Greeks, and, he's, and he um, gave me some periodicals to read. So I took him to read a bit. Anyway, a few months later he goes, can I have my periodicals back? I said, oh, I can't. He goes, why, guys? So I burnt them, right? And, he, and, then, and then to show you his humility, and he goes... He, he let out a howl, right? He went, woo, like that. That's, that's no exaggeration. He howled in the middle of the train. And um, he said, and he said to me, you Latin dog. Devil. And every other thing that you can think of that he was, and I said to him, you're like a Jehovah Witness. I said, I, look, I wouldn't join your church if it was the last church on earth. I said, I'm not, that's it. I'm not, there's no way that I would join your church of fanaticism. And he left up the things. So I was downstairs and he went up the stairs and he was sitting in the middle, of standing on the middle. And just before he left and he was letting out some really bad blasphemies against the mysteries of the church, saying that the mysteries of the church are not real. Only theirs are real. So 
you might say, oh, he was doing that out of zeal for orthodoxy. That's not zeal. The saints, when they spoke, they spoke with love, they spoke with humility, and when they were a bit fiery, it came from the Holy Spirit. I've never read that our saints howled like Wolfman Jack because you said something to them. I've never, I've never heard of it. And even we, we read so much lies, and St John the Baptist where he spoke, he said, you brood of vipers, and he was quite strict with those that came to him. He called them names, and Christ called the Pharisees names, etc. But that was done with love. These people say to you, go to hell, you're going to go to hell, and this and that. And that's the difference. You have to understand, the Holy Fathers were full of the Holy Spirit. These people have ego that they can't even say, oh, your garden looks nice. How do you do it? That's what I was going to say. How do you do it? And the other father tried to tell him one day, he goes, you know, the reason why it's so green is because we use certain things. And he just turned around. That's, that is the zeal of orthodoxy. So we go on. So they, the apostles knew full well the great benefit and gain is derived by these souls. When a whole community of the church raises their hands in prayer and in and in unity with the entire priesthood, and they offer the liturgy, how it's possible that we will not succeed in obtaining divine mercy? How is it not possible, St John Christum says, that through this prayer that God will give mercy to those who we're praying for? But this refers, this is very important, this last sentence, but this refers to those who have died in faith. Those who have died in faith. They are referring to orthodox people, who have died in faith. There are many Orthodox who we bury who don't have faith, who even though they are buried in Orthodox church, as I said last time, they don't have any idea of what is Orthodoxy. That's a problem, which we'll go into later. The writer of this book, Father Benedict, where he writes here and he underlines it, those who have lived here in a Christian manner and who are unable to attain perfection derive a great amount of benefit from the commemorative services. In other words, those who died without being able to die in a pure, completely clear of their sins, etc., in that way, like the saints did. Those people are helped. How much we don't know, the Holy Fathers say that. Have no doubt, however... You will definitely be granted some benefits, says St. John Chrysostom. When he says you will be granted, because he's preaching this on his writings, you will be granted benefit. Who is he referring to when he says you will be granted benefit? I think he's referring to the people that are alive and he's telling them when you go, you will be granted benefit. But that could be open. He might be saying you will be granted benefit, your prayers will help your dead. But I think more it's the other one. But anyway, that's open to thing. So how great this benefit is, is up to where it reaches, we cannot tell. What we do know is stressed by the Holy Church Fathers who state that there is a great benefit which proceeds from the services for those deceased who had not departed while totally unrepentant. The memorial prayers and the liturgies help those who died in faith and not unrepentant, like especially we say fully unrepentant. The final judgment in which the soul will receive its final position in eternity has not been made. Now, this has to be explained. When a person dies, their soul goes out, 
and it goes to, as we said, either to heaven or some other, some, we're going to see in a minute where the, other, where the others go. After Christ's second coming, when Christ comes again for the last judgment, everyone will resurrect with their bodies. Then those who are righteous, those who are saved, will be put in heaven with their bodies. And those who go to hell will go to hell with their bodies. What the church fathers say is that where those souls, even the saints who are in heaven, are not receiving fully the blessedness, their reward. They are tasting it, but not fully. Those who are in Hades or in hell, whatever, they are not receiving their full punishment partially. Their full punishment or their full reward will only occur when we have our bodies because the fathers, say, the fathers of the church say, we sinned with our bodies, we should be punished with our bodies. We sinned while, while in our bodies. We, sin, we did good while we were in our bodies. Then we should be rewarded in our bodies. The Catholics actually say that as soon as a person dies and goes to heaven, the ones who are saved, they receive the full reward. The Orthodox say, no, not the full reward. Full reward even for the saints, the, the blessedness that they're going to have, the joy and all that, will come in its entire, in, entirely when the they are given back their bodies when they are with the, uh, with the resurrected bodies. That's why we say that when a person dies now, it's called partial judgment. They are judged and they're put wherever they're put. It's a partial judgment, but, but it's not closed. There's still room to help a person if they haven't made it to heaven. But once Christ's second coming has occurred and everyone has has risen from the dead with their bodies, that's it. It's sealed. Where you are is where you are forever. So that's what really hell means. Hell is, we're talking about the future. Even those of, that are horrible sinners, they're not really in hell because hell is only when you have your body. So where are they? Well, let's have a look. Well, before we do that, we'll answer Vladimir's question about the cases of the heavily sinful. What happens in the case of those persons who left this life totally unrepentant or who did not have the chance to make themselves ready for their departure? Some people die totally evil, but some people don't die totally. They don't die like, uh, fully as an evil person but they're not ready, they're not fully ready, which, as I said before, how a lot of us will die. The answer to this is found in God's word and is extremely clear. The Holy Church Fathers stress the following. This time of our life, while we're alive, this is the time to do the battle. This is the time to struggle. This is the time to repent. Now, don't say to yourself, oh, well, um, I'll, you know, leave a slack life and then someone will pray for me or whatever. Now. Now, fix yourself up now. We all have to fix ourselves up while we're alive. That's what the saints did. They didn't wait. They struggled every day for their salvation. St. John Chrysostom says the following, Let us not cry for those who have died, but we should do so for those who died while in a state of sin. That was fantastic when I read that. He said, don't cry 
like we see people go to funerals and they cry. Okay, fair enough. The person's gone, you miss them, things like that. But St. John Chrysostom says, that's not what you should be crying about. Our tears should be for those who have not been saved. How many people that go to a funeral say, I'm crying because my mother wasn't saved or my father didn't confess or something like that? People don't say such things a lot of times. They just cry and go, I'm going to miss my father and miss my mother. That's it. I'm going to miss my brother or miss my sister. It's, it's a worldly thing. But St. Jesus Christ says, don't cry like that. Even though humanly, yes, we're going to cry because our loved one's leaving. But that's just a small thing. The most important thing is, how did the person die? If the person didn't die prepared, it says, this is what St. John Christum says, exactly his words, these souls are worthy of lamentations, bewilderments and tears. Lamentations is like from the depths of your heart going, oh, no, woe, woe is woe, woe to that person. And tears. As long as they were living here, we would not, we, we could have hoped for that person's change and improvement. No one is able to repent when he leaves this life, St. John Christum says. Now, while they're alive, they should have fixed themselves up. No athlete is capable of competing after the matches have ended. The athletes leave the field. In, the, in other words, he's saying, like you go to a match. When the match is over, like whatever they're playing, say football, whatever, you know, like even though some people do have fantasy like that, they, they, um, everyone's gone, the competition's over, and the person goes and says, I'm going to play. But well, that's it, it's finished. The game's over. And that's what St John Christum's saying. He says, You're, it's like this life is the time for the struggle. Like those footballers, whatever they do, they're struggling to win whatever, whatever they're going to win. They're like a little gold cheap thing. Us, we want to win eternal salvation. And you've got to do it while you're alive. As long as we are here, we can surely have hope. When we leave this life, however, we are no longer able to repent. It is not in our power to repent and neither are we able to wash away our sins. For this reason, we should constantly be preparing ourselves for our exodus, for our departure from this life. Now, St. John Chrysostom does say there, we are not able to wash away our sins. But I said before that when we pray for the dead, they are forgiven, but depends on the spiritual state of the person and what type of sins they had. Well, we're going to, like, to use an extreme example, we're going to pray for Hitler that he be given forgiveness of sins when he died totally unrepentant with no remorse for what he did or the millions of people that he killed. And not just Jews. That's a bit overdone. But everyone, Russians died and gypsies died and homosexuals died and uh, people that were against him politically, like the whole, the whole thing was there. The, the death camps did not just have Jews. They had many, many people. So it, it's true that the Germans did count the, Jew, the, the Jews as being the lowest of all human beings and they actually said, and just one notch above them but still animals were the, Rus- were the Slavs. Russians and things like that. One notch a bit above. So we don't hear much about that, but we hear about we hear a lot of movies on Holocaust and things like that, but not many movies on that. About the Serbians that died under the Catholics, about 800,000 to nearly 1 million. And this, the Archbishop who was involved in that, uh, the Pope canonised a saint. Interesting. By the way, a lot of their appearances, you know all these appearances the Catholics have of the Mother of God supposedly? 
It's always got some special meaning. One of them, I forgot where it was, was a Fatima somewhere else. It was that the Russians would be converted to Catholicism. There was another place, the one where was their supposed Saint Bernadette, where she saw the Mother of God. They're all children, by the way. Isn't it interesting that all these visions come from children? Orthodoxy don't have many of those things. I think I found one, Blessed Child Musa, I think something like that, where she saw the Mother. But there was no special dogma that came out of it. Now, with Bernadette, what came out of that? That, that she said that the mother of God supposedly said, I am the immaculate conception, that's a heresy. And there's another one in somewhere, I think, in, um, in Croatia, somewhere around there, I can't say the word, measured, measured, something like that, some name. Uh, who knows? Yes, thank you. Uh, there, that's an interesting place. The mother of God, that's a very holy place for the, for the Roman Catholics there, the, the Croatians, I don't know. Anyway, for the Catholics there, that's a really important place. That is a place where there's a valley or some type of mount. That's where they uh, threw down uh, thousands of Serbs and killed them. And that's the mother of God appeared at that place and blessed the place. Interesting. And always children. And in point of actual fact, we have so many saints that saw the mother of God, but we don't have shrines everywhere that the saints saw. Elder Paisio saw the mother of God. Elder Joseph used to communicate with the Mother of God many times. He had a lot of appearances, but there's no shrines. Actually, the Mother of God appeared to St. Athanasius of Manathos, which is near the monastery of Lavra. And I've been there where you walk along there, and this is where she appeared at a certain place, and she hit the rock and fresh water came out. And that place where the fresh water came out is this far away from the sea, meaning that how does fresh water come so close to the sea? And that's a miracle. And guess what they've got there? A little shrine about this big where you just go in and drink the water and that's it with an icon. Now, if that occurred for the Roman Catholics, if the Mother of God appeared and made the fresh water, they'll have um, something bigger than Westfields, right? <laughs> something great, something of, big, of, of, of very big place, big shopping centre, but a big place where everyone goes there with their wheelchairs, etc., etc. We don't have that. And especially when little kids are involved who are open to suggestion from demons. The little children, you don't listen to 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds to have some teachings about the, uh, things that are contrary to the church. So St John Christum, where he says, repent now. You cannot repent after you've died. This is the time to repent. In that section... He says that St. John Christum spoke very strictly. That's why he said we are, that they are unable to wash away their sins. On this section, he says, where he specifically speaks about helping the dead, specifically here. He stresses, let us help these souls as much as we are allowed to help them so that we can render them even some small assistance as much as we are allowed to do whatever God has allowed us to help them to a certain level if they've died really in a, in a very bad way, uh, to give them some small assistance. Up there, he didn't speak about assistance. So sometimes the saints, depending on how they speak, they might speak in one time very strict and another time depending on a little bit more flexible. Someone said to me that they heard my talk where I spoke about psychologists and they said that I spoke really negative against psychologists in one of the talks. And... This lady, very pious lady, and who's a psychologist herself, 
Orthodox. She said that it's going to cause people, because people are going to think that you are saying as a priest that all psychologists are bad. And I said to her, well, in that talk, what was I speaking about? I was speaking about the priests who continually, every time someone's got a bit of a mental problem, they go, oh, you've got to go to a psychiatrist. Oh, go to a psychologist. Go to a psychiatrist. Go to a psychologist. And I was getting angry at that time and saying, no, this, this is ridiculous. So in another talk, I would say, yes, sometimes we have, to, some people need to go to psychologists and this depends on the mental issues and some people do need to be medicated because they are psychotic and other problems. But I didn't say it in that talk, I said to her, because in that talk I was specifically going against the fact that every time someone goes to a priest and says, oh, Father, I've got a little bit of a problem and this, and they go, I'll go to a psychiatrist. And what I was saying is, why? The church has prayers. The church has unction. The church has uh, confession, spiritual struggle, like the saints say. And if you do have to go, go in conjunction with the church and, and go to the, if you have to go to the psychiatrist if, the, if there's a serious issue there. But not every single mental issue. So what I'm trying to say is that, see, on one talk I spoke like that and I said, yes, we've got to go. Another talk I spoke very strictly because that was the topic. St John Chrysostom, when he was speaking about preparation for the next life, he spoke strictly, prepare yourself now, strictly. But now he's speaking about helping the dead. And he says, let us help these souls, etc., etc., to give them some small assistance as much as we're allowed to do because God has justice as well. How and in what manner, he answers, we ourselves should pray and we should ask others to pray for these souls. We should offer charitable acts together with supplications for those who have departed while in a state of sin. All this is done so that the deceased may receive some type of consolation. He didn't mention that above. Because he was speaking about preparing. Make sure you're prepared. Okay, well, once you're gone, then that's another topic. Why do you hesitate that the dead gain some kind of benefit from our prayers and charity done on their behalf? The dead are helped. Exactly how much they help, we don't know. But they helped. Who is capable, this elder saying, elder, um, the Benedict from this book, who is capable of knowing which one of us has departed this life while in a state of repentance and who has not? It's hard to know. Who can affirm that he is a knower of hearts and thus prejudge one of his fellow men? How do we know what has taken place from the time a person falls from a bridge into the river? I don't know if he's talking about suicide. I think he's talking about an accident. Say someone who wasn't a church person and suddenly he fell. from the, And all of a sudden as he's falling, he says, oh, God, forgive me. You know, within those few seconds, we don't know. So he's saying there, unless someone obviously has left the church, has gone to another religion, or just left the church completely, or someone who dies obviously away from the church, then it's difficult to commemorate them. However, if the church has buried them, then I suppose you can put their names in the church if that's what the church has done. Whether it will help or not, we don't know because we don't know how the person died exactly. But there are people who, who do die unprepared. And let's hope that none of us ever die like that. We don't hope it. We don't want it for anyone else. We don't want it for ourselves. 
Father Benedict actually gives an example in the life of Saint Nectarius, whereby someone had died, and after a few years in Greece, because there's not enough land, they have to un they have to um, dig up the, the bones and put them into little boxes in this little chapels where they've got all the, bo the bones. They haven't got room over there. And uh, one day they opened up the grave of someone and it hadn't decomposed. And one would say, was it a saint? No. Sometimes they don't decompose because of sin, some type of excommunication, some type of curse, something bad, something bad. And um, they're not like the saints where they give off beautiful fragrance. These corpses that don't decompose smell and it's horrible. They don't decompose. So therefore the relatives become very frightened and go, oh, something's wrong, something's wrong. Well, they don't say it for anything any other time, only if the, if the body doesn't decompose. Anyway, so they call a priest, especially if they call a bishop. And Father Benedict actually gives an example here that there was, um, well, I can't remember the life, but somewhere along the line, I think St. Denis was the same thing of Zakynthos, that they went and St. Denis, I think it was, he went and prayed over the bones of, of the, over the body that didn't decompose of someone who had some type of curse or excommunication on them and immediately the person dissolved and became bones, whatever they should become, which shows that prayers done for people can benefit them. The fact that the person later on decomposed, that the bishop read a special prayer of forgiveness shows that there is some benefit. Does it mean the person saved? We don't know. But there's benefit, which was shown the fact that the body was able to decompose. Now, let's get to the point, which is, this is why it's important to read Lives of Saints. Don't just read the Rada. Don't just read the Bible. Don't just read dogmas. Read a mixture of everything. Don't even just read ascetical saints. Read, that's why I've made available all those at the back there, a lot of them that we produced but also bought a wide range of lives of saints on purpose, married saints, ascetical saints, uh, virgins, all different types, kings, queens, abbots, abbesses, people that were very sinful but then they later on they changed, others that were born and they lived quite a holy life like St Nicholas, they wouldn't feed from his mother's breast on Wednesday and Friday, a divine thing, all different types. Don't just go on one thing like those people, the one with the memorial prayer and said, oh, memorial prayers are necessary, and the other dope who said that um, I only go with what the, what the rudder says. And at the, at the end, he just cut off a whole tradition of orthodoxy, and yet he believes he's orthodox. Now, let's come to the point. Where are these souls? During the Pentecost, as you know, when you go to church in the after, or they usually do it after the liturgy, there are three large prayers that are read. They're called the kneeling prayers, and everyone kneels down three times, and that's where the priest is praying that the Holy Spirit come on that. That's on the day of Pentecost. It usually should be done vespers in the evening, but because people can't come back again to church, they'll do it straight after the, the liturgy. That way people don't make two trips. And there's the three prayers. On the third prayer... There is references to the dead. And it says, who, meaning God, who on this all-perfect and saving feast does graciously accept the supplicated prayers of forgiveness for them that are held in Hades, 
who grantest us great hope that unto the departed held in bondage of grief, there be sent from thee rest and refreshment. Finally, we come to the answer to the question that I've been asking, that these souls are held in Hades. which sounds very, very uh, frightening. But church fathers do say they're not in the same degree of suffering or whatever distress. The amount of suffering that someone goes through in Hades is dependent on their sins. But we'll come to that soon. The main thing is we finally got our answer, which St Basil wrote this prayer, St Basil the Great, that when we're praying for the forgiveness that they've been given some type of respite, it says, who grantest us great hope that unto the departed held in the bondage of grief, that these souls are, are in grief, they're bound, they're held captive, there be sent from thee rest and refreshment. Father Seraphim Rose quotes that section and believes that the church is praying for those who are destined for hell after the resurrection of the dead. He thinks that this is specifically a prayer, and I think maybe I'll say too, because he, he, doesn't, he says here, who grant us rest and refreshment, some respite. Remember we said this in the last talk. Those who can't be saved, those who led really evil lives, didn't have any, hardly anything faith for God, were unrepentant, etc., etc., they receive from the prayers of the relatives and friends and all that, they receive respite. But for those who have died who were pious Orthodox Christians but did not have a chance to fully prepare themselves, it goes on. Hearken unto us, the lowly and wretched, who pray unto thee and grant rest unto the souls of thy servants. In the first prayer, he didn't call them thy servants. Here he says, Grant rest unto the souls of thy servants that have fallen asleep before us in a place of light, a place of repose, a place of refreshment, where all pain, sorrow and sign have fled away and establish their spirits in the tabernacles of the righteous and grant unto them peace and rest. You see, now some might say this is one prayer. Father Seraphim says the first part is referring to those that are, in, that are going to go to hell later for sure. And for them, we only can give them some respite. Who they are, we don't know. So don't say he's in hell, that person. That we don't, that's not our business. But the main thing here is that there seems to be two prayers, one for them and then one for those who are in a position who are receptive to be able to be given forgiveness of sins and to be allowed into the kingdom of heaven to be taken out of hates, like a telephone. We've got the mobiles, so you can understand reception. So we use worldly things. That's what I used to do when I used to teach. When you teach a concept, you've got to use something that you know the students are familiar with. So if I'm going to teach, for example, gradient. You know, gradient is a slope, the, the gradient of a line, the slope. So what you do is you say to the, instead of going straight and you go, with a line and rise over run and this and this and that and make people get all confused, you start with Something that everyone knows. And what do we say? Have you ever been on a hot day when you've got to walk up a big hill? That's a really big hill. It's got a really big slope. 
That's a very, very, very big gradient. That's a really... And talk about that and it's low and then you go, oh, this, this, that. So when you're trying to go up a hill on a bike, you know, if it's got a low gradient, it's easy. Then you go. So that way the children, when they start seeing lines on graphs, they say, this is a little gradient and this is a larger gradient. Up, 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 up. Has no gradient because it's vertical. Here, zero gradient. And before you even teach them mathematics, they've got an idea of gradient. So the same here. We've got to use things that people are familiar with. So let's go back to the mobile phone. Mobile phone, you hear people say, sorry, I can't hear you. Um, I, I don't have good reception. What does that mean? means that the person is in a position that the Telstra Towers, which burns everyone's heads, that they actually, <laughs> that they actually are not receiving, they're not, the person's not in a good position, much like they say, oh, I'm in a black hole. I'm, I'm not in a good position. So either they're not in a good position, and that's why they're not reading receptive, or their phone's rubbish and they've got to buy a new one. It's one of the two. But the point is, reception is the ability of that phone to pick up the telephone, the, the waves, whatever you call them. That's the same as the soul. The soul has to be in a certain, has to have certain condition so that that soul can be receptive to receiving God's mercy. Some souls are in that position and they can receive God's mercy. Other souls are not in that position and they cannot receive God's mercy. They might receive some respite but not release. They cannot go to heaven when the last judgment comes, when the second coming comes. We hope to die prepared, but if we don't die prepared, but at least to die in a position, in a, in a state where we can receive this mercy, that we can receive God's forgiveness, that our sins are not such that there is no forgiveness, that there is no salvation. And we will go on to that further. The main thing here is we have now discovered that those who die imperfect do not go to heaven, but they go to Hades. When we are praying for our dead, we are praying for those who are in Hades. And the best person to tell us about that is Saint Nicodemus, the Athenite. Saint Nicodemus was called the Colivard, something like that, to do with the wheat. There was a whole controversy on Manathos. And the controversy was that Saint Nicodemus and his followers said, we are not allowed to pray for the dead on Sunday. Sunday is a time of the resurrection. It's joy. We do not pray with koliva, with wheat, on those days. And there was other monks who were saying, no, that's wrong, and this and that. And there was a whole dispute. There was a dispute. And because of this dispute, many of the other monks who were against St. Nicodemus started putting him down, started making accusations against him, etc. So St. Nicodemus put down, put into writing what he believes, because people were saying he's a heretic and this and that. So he wrote what's called the Confession of Faith, which this book has been um, produced by Uncut Mountain. And this is St. Nicodemus's Confession of Faith, where he speaks about the memorial prayers and he speaks about some other things that they accused him of. They even accused him of something to do with the Magi that came to Christ's birth. I don't know what it was, I can't remember. They accused him that he said that Christ worked as a carpenter. I don't know what the story there is. And all these things that he put as well, I'm going to clear up. This is what I believe. 
But what I want to tell you is this. Because of this controversy, and he suffered, St. Nicodemus. Oh, he was slandered, and he was even thrown out of Mount Athos. He was persecuted, him and his followers. They were called names and fanatics and all this type of stuff. And people say, oh, see, see how bad it is? It's the same now with the ecumenists. Uh, the ecumenists are in the churches, which they are. We have ecumenists. Some patriarchs could be ecumenists. Some bishops are ecumenists. Some priests are ecumenists. Some uh, monks are ecumenists. Some people are ecumenists. That's without a doubt. And people say, oh, no, no, it's too it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. And they start going into like a panic. Because it's heresy, which is true. We have to be careful of heresy. But we have to be careful not to allow the demons to come from behind and put a flame on our backsides and say, run, run and do this and go into like hysteria and make wrong decisions, either to leave the church or to say other blasphemies like that other person who said that we throw away the lives of saints and all these things that are wrong. Heresies have existed and they've always existed. But because of this problem that occurred in St Nicodemus's day, he put into writing his, what is the memorial prayer? which I believe God allowed that to happen, to clear up what are memorial prayers. I think like today, that probably then, I don't think people knew what, what, what's the reason for memorial prayers. And because of this controversy, St Nicodemus wrote so much in there going through the church's teaching on memorial prayers. Now, the same today. Today we have ecumenism. Today we have this theory that all the churches have some parts of the truth and we join together and then we have the church, which is bad, of course, because we know that orthodoxy is the one holy Catholic apostolic church. And people will say, but that, isn't that bad? Yes, it's bad, but there could be some good out of it too. And what's the good? The good is that whenever there's a heresy, like there was in the 4th century where Arius said that Christ wasn't God but was a created being, that because of that, People believed it. If people knew that Christ was God in the first place, why would they believe this heretic, what he was saying? They believed it because they didn't even know what the teaching of the church was on the incarnation that Christ became man, but that he's God. That when you say Christ, you say perfect man, perfect God. They obviously didn't know it. And when this this devil came along in the form of this man who was Arius and said, Christ is a created being, like the Jehovah Witnesses say. By the way, the Jehovah Witnesses are modern-day Arians, exactly what the Arians believe, they believe to a large extent too. And they came along and then people of the church started collapsing and started to believe it. If we knew today that orthodoxy is the truth, we would not be... Um, confused and say, is it? Are the Catholics? But there's the Protestants? Are they going to be saved? They're not going to be saved? And have all this confusion. But the confusion exists and these people are allowed to do what they're doing and praying with heretics, etc., because people are not aware of the teaching of the church, that the Orthodox Church is the one holy Catholic apostolic church, that it is the church. And we don't say that in boasting to say we've got the truth and the others are dogs or the others are going to go to hell. That's not how a person who confesses orthodoxy believes. When we say the church is the truth, at the same time, we never have that the others who are 
not orthodox or whatever, and we say they're all going to go to hell, all this type of thing. We don't think like that. Read the Holy Fathers and see how they thought. But back to the thing. Today, ecumenism exists because people are confused in the first place. People are slack. People care about their TVs, and they've got new TVs coming out, by the way. So we had LCDs and plasmas. Now I heard they've got a new one. What's it called? Um, hmm? No, another one. No, what's it called? Uh, 3D. 3D, I saw it, they, they actually said, and it's really thin. That before they used to be this thick, and now they're going to be this thick. I don't understand the difference unless you live in a, in a cubby house and you, need, <laughs> and you need the room. Then I can understand that you should go and buy 3D because it's really thin. That's one thing. And you can also imagine that you're going to enter into the screen while you're wearing the glasses. You wear glasses, they say, and it's like... You can actually, that's like the person or those things are in the screen. It's like they're alive and you enter it. Anyway, so people are interested in that. People are interested in everything about money and education and university and how to become beautiful and how to um, lose weight and how to, the makeup and the hair and the stilettos that people wear and the guys and this and all. Everyone's got interest. Did you hear what? What? About ecumenism or about what? About the... What, no, no. Um, there's a new car out now. They say it's really fantastic. I'm, th- I'm thinking of buying it. See, that's the interest. Women, did you hear what happened? What? David Jones has a sale. <laughs> They've got really beautiful dresses there, half price, which really is the price what it was in the first place. And, <laughs> but people believe it. So, you know, someone else might come up and say, did you hear? I said, I'm going to change my home loan. cheaper. I'm going to get 1% cheaper on my home loan. That will reduce my rate, my, what do you call it, those monthly rates by $200. But about the church, about the one holy Catholic church, about the souls in Hades, no one cares. That's why God has allowed ecumenism to occur. That's why when I was younger in the faith, I used to sometimes go to Manathos and I used to see Holy Fathers there. And when you brought up the topic about ecumenism, they were quite calm. And I used to become scandalised in those days. I'd go, why aren't they, you know, why aren't they fiery? Because they knew, like Elder Paisos and Elder Profila, they knew that the heresy has occurred because of the, of the condition of the world, the way people have become. It's not, the solution is not just to run away or whatever. That's not the solution. They believe that the solution is that people have to change and repent for then for the church to be rid of this heresy of ecumenism. So I gave you, I gave you the example a few, years, a few months ago where I said there was a person, uh, a person in America, I don't know how old, say he was 19 or 20, and he went to Greece and he was speaking to some people there about orthodoxy, asking questions, and, they, and, the, and the fathers were saying there, because how do you know these things? He says, you're very young and you live in America where they don't, you know, where Orthodox is not much around. Now it's better because of the monasteries of Elder Ephraim and there is a revival of Orthodoxy. That's why a lot of people are converting uh, to Orthodoxy. A lot of converts and Protestants and Catholics, um, they're converting. But let's just say this happened decades ago. They were saying, where, um, how do you know these things and this and that? And he says, oh, my bishop taught me. And he goes, your bishop, who's your bishop? He's such and such. He goes, 
I heard that he is the biggest ecumenist, one of the biggest ecumenists in, in America. How are you saying that you learn orthodoxy from this bishop who is really, one of, really a heretic? not defrocked yet. So when he does his service, etc., his mysteries are valid. But he's got heretical views and he teaches heresy. So the fathers there were saying, I don't understand how you speak, you speak orthodox, your, your mentality is orthodox, your understanding is orthodox, but yet you're saying that you learn your orthodoxy from this, from this ecumenist. He goes, yeah, because... When he would say, we're the same as the Catholics, that used to kind of confuse me. So I would go and study books and I would go and pray or I would ask someone else. And then they would say, oh, the Coptics, it was a mistake, the Fourth Ecumenical Council, they're really like us. So I said, oh, that confused me. So I went and studied, what's the Fourth Ecumenical Council? Read Lives of Saints about the Fourth Ecumenical Council and this and this and that. So the more he taught heresy, the more the person said, I would read Pray, ask other people, other fathers to tell me what is the truth. And from that, I learned orthodoxy. So people shouldn't pull out their hair and say, oh, no, it's ecumenism and this and that. There are some benefits. We should get off our backsides and begin to really know our faith. Because it's only the ignorant who will be absorbed in ecumenism. No person who knows their orthodoxy can become an ecumenist. When they hear the creed or when they say the creed, it says in one holy Catholic apostolic church, they know what that means. The Greeks, in the, I remember when I used to go to church, they used to do their cross when they said, um, where they used to do their cross, they used to do one part, what was it? Um, oh, the Holy Spirit part. When they say, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, they would do their cross. I used to notice they used to do it at that part of the creed. I never knew why. And then I started to think, I think these people, a lot of them must have been from the islands of Greece where Catholicism was present because the Latins took over. A lot of islands had a large population of uh, Catholics there. So the Orthodox were kind of being um, overtaken by these people and some of them were converting to Catholicism, especially those islands on the west, Corfu, Kefalonia, and Zakynthos. And as I said before, there are three incorrupt relics there. Corfu has Saint Spiridon, Kefalonia has Saint Gerasimos, and Zakynthos has Saint Vinicius. All those three islands have incorrupt relics of the saints. And the Orthodox say those islands, one, two, three on the side of Greece and Italy's over here. It's like a wall. It's like a protection from the Catholics. So when the Catholics try and come over and say, we have the truth and convert to us, the Orthodox says, why would we convert to you when we have living relics here of the saints that do miracles? And that's why God allowed those relics to be there, to protect Greece from... Catholic influence, and to protect those on the islands that were very close to them. So, because of the controversy with to do with the wheat, St. Nicodemus wrote this confession. I'm going to read you one part, which I, because I read the whole confession, and I came to this part and I go, fantastic, 
I finally found something which is really good. And I, and I well, everything is good, but this one I want to read to you. It says, no one can deny that memorial services for those who have fallen asleep are mournful and that they bring about sorrow. He says that. So without a doubt, when we, when we are present at a panahira, at a memorial service, it's sad. It's sorrowful. Now he goes, the reason why. First, because the church considers the departed brethren, the church considers those who have departed, but he, calls, he says brethren, still orthodox Christians, as sinners and not as righteous, sin being the root and cause of sorrows and mourning because it separates one from God. So he says that, yes, brethren, but sinners, as we all are. And anything to do with sin and anything to do with something that separates us from God is a cause for sorrow and mourning. The people, so, so then he goes on. Second, because the souls of those who have fallen asleep are considered to be in a dark and distressing place and simply, he says straight out, in the prison of Hades. Hades is an... Uh, Hades is where souls go before the second judgment. Then later on when they get their bodies, they go to hell. So really we don't say that their souls are in hell. They're in Hades. People sometimes think it's the same thing. It's not. Hades is where people are without their body and they're not receiving full punishment or whatever. Hell is when the person gets their body, they go to hell and that's forever. And he says here, the people that we're talking about are in the prison of Hades, which is truly a place of sorrow and a cause for sadness. Now, that is where I was leading to in this talk. And St. Nicodemus was cleared up, all because of this controversy of Manathos, that they were doing memorial prayers on Sunday, and he was saying that shouldn't be done. And from all this commotion, it was quite a big controversy, that he wrote all these things out and cleared up, what is it? What does the church believe about memorial prayers? Wherefore, the church offers supplications through the memorial services that the souls of the departed brethren be liberated from such a place and be placed in a place of light, a place of green pasture, a place of refreshment, wherein there is no sorrow or sign, which is what we get from the service, like I said, but he's put it clearly. They're in Hades. Hades. And we are praying that they be released from Hades. It is for this reason that all the living Christians who are present at the memorial services for the deceased wear mournful clothes, which is, uh, I, don't know, I think Serbs do, do, but the Greeks do it a lot, where they wear dark clothes, etc. Now, Russians don't like it. They go, oh, why do Greeks wear dark things and things like that? Well, I don't know. When you go into something which is sad and you're coming in with pink and frills, and I mean, does it really go? There is, a pur- there is a purpose of the way we dress. If I came here, right, with a pink hat with pom-poms and, and, and um, Bozo the Clown type of clothes, would you respect me? If you went to your doctor and he came up to you in his shorts with bad breath and green tea because he didn't clean them, would you like that? No, well, because you have a thing. A doctor should be like that. The priest should be like that. When we go to a panahita, to a service for the dead, we are supposed to dress accordingly. Our clothes reflect our souls. So that's why people come with some mournful clothes. The dark clothes have a feeling we're mourning. What are we mourning? We're mourning that these people are in Hades. Hades. There's two ways of saying it, but I think Americans say Hades. So 
he says here, so we wear the duck, the mournful clothes, their eyes are sorrowful and filled with tears, and they supplicate and they beseech holy God on behalf of the one fallen asleep with a grievous voice, with a voice full of pain and grief, with a voice which says, Lord, have mercy. Lord, grant rest to the soul of thy servant. That's the prayer of a person who's praying for their dead. Third and finally, memorial services are mournful on account of their reference to death, the source of every sorrow and mourning. If Paul says that we should not grieve over those who have fallen asleep, uh, there is a quote which says, uh, there's a quote which I wrote out, which says, but uh, it's read in the epistle during the um, funeral service. It says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Least you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In other words, it's saying that St. Nicodemus says, where St. Paul says those who have fallen asleep don't mourn for them, but up the top St. Nicodemus says to mourn. So how come St. Nicodemus says mourn for the dead and St. Paul says don't mourn for them? And the answer is that St. Paul is referring not to mourn for those who have fallen asleep, Um, he is referring to the righteous and to the saints. Don't cry for those who have died and have been saved. What's it to cry about? But cry for those who have not been saved and are in Hades waiting for release. That's what it means. So St. Nicodemus is correct. We can mourn for those who have departed. But for those who have departed and have become saints, St. Paul says there's no need to to mourn. In the church's prayers, there's one which says, St. Theophanes in one of the canons says, Deliver, O Saviour, thy slaves who are in the hell of tears and sighing. This is where we pray for the dead. And St. Theophanes wrote this canon and he says, deliver us, save those slaves who are in the hell. Not necessarily that it means hell is hell, but those who are suffering the something about hell and will go to hell in the future. Re, uh, deliver them, O Saviour. St. Theodore, in his canon, which is in the Lenten Triodion, he says, let us all entreat Christ, performing a memorial today for those uh, dead from the ages, that he might deliver from eternal fire those departed in faith and in hope of eternal life. He goes, that's del- he's asking Christ, we're saying, you people, all of us, who are doing this memorial service today, for all the dead, that Christ might deliver them from the eternal fire, those departed in faith and hope of eternal life. We are praying for those who died as Orthodox Christians. Deliver our Saviour, another one, all who have died in faith from the ever-scorching fire and unillumined darkness, the gnashing of teeth and the eternally tormenting worm and all torment. He is referring to deliver them from the final hell. Take them out of Hades so they won't go to hell. So the church's prayers, as you can see, are very clear in what we're praying for. Saint Cleopas, sorry, Elder Cleopas of Romania, who died in 2000-something, 
a very great holy father, a great holy father of the Romanian church. See, I've picked all different, St. John Damascus, St. John Chrysostom. We've gone through uh, Elder Joseph and all that, modern day. And now we're going to a, a person who died only a few years ago. What does he say? He says, we should know that if someone at the partial judgment is destined for eternal torment, so there's someone who's died and that person is destined to go to hell because of their life and is a Christian and servant of Christ, he has one hope. And the elder saying, what's that hope? His hope is in the intercession of living Christians who are able to pray to Christ for him to be rescued from the torments of hell or at least to find some release from them. Now that we've read all the rest, these things make sense. People have read this book, but it seems to escape. A lot of times when we read things, it escapes. I notice we read that and we go, okay, and go on. But this is very significant. He is saying there what the church teaches, that those who have died in a way that, can, that their sins can be forgiven are waiting to be released. As for the others, at least they will be given some relief, purely orthodox. And that's from a modern-day elder. And he continues on, he says, The Saviour himself assures us that our prayers will not pass unnoticed. Above all those that we make from love for our neighbour, he tells us, so we, we pray for our neighbours, but he tells us, um, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Here he's saying that Christ said, when you pray, if you believe with your heart what you're praying for, God will give it. Consequently, if that's the case, prayer for the reposed is not only a sign and strength of love we share between us, but also a proof of our faith. To pray for the dead means you must have love for them. And to pray for the dead means you must have faith in Christ who can release them. And that's why praying for the dead helps us. It One, it makes us to have more love to think about the dead and also means we have to have faith. We have faith that God can, that Christ can release them. Thus the Saviour says, if, you, if thou canst believe all things are possible to him that believeth. If we believe that Christ can do it, he will do it. If the person has died and is able to be forgiven. Now who they are, it's hard to know. Our duty is just to pray. Elder Cleopa goes on, we do not suppose, as do the Roman Catholics, that there exists a purgatorial fire. Now, the Roman Catholics believe, with many mistakes, they have many mistakes, this is one of them. They say when a person dies, if they're really evil, they go to hell. And if they're saints, they go to heaven. The ones in hell, that's it, they're finished, they're locked in. When they get their bodies back, they'll be in hell. That's, you can't do nothing for them. Those who are in heaven are receiving the full reward of their life. They're already living the life that they're going to lead after they receive their bodies, which is wrong. Both are wrong. The Roman Catholics believe if someone wasn't holy enough to be saved and if someone wasn't evil enough to go to hell, there's another third group. They made up a third group and they call it purgatory. Now, purgatory is where souls go... This is what the Catholics believe. And there they burn in this hellfire. And while they're burning, 
they are making up for the sins that they've done and after some time of burning there and suffering, together with the church's prayers, then that person's released. So they've made up a third place. Orthodoxy, two places. Heaven and Hades. That's it. For the Catholics, we have purgatory and this suffering that they go through and they're cleansed. We say there is, there, that, that's, that's not the case. The people that are in Hades who are able to be saved are saved not because they're suffering and they're making up for their sins, but they are saved because of the commemorations, the liturgies and the alms given, the people to, giving money to the poor and everyone praying for them, that they are released because God has love and is able to. That from God's love, from his graciousness that he has, he just forgives them. There's no um, burning of things. The Catholics actually believe that a person has to suffer. But we say, Elder Cleopas says, we, the Orthodox, say that those who sinned very severely or mortally and did not confess their sin is the passage from Hades to Paradise impossible. So he goes in detail. If someone has done a very serious sin and has not confessed it, then for them, the passage from Hades to Paradise, we can't help them to come out. Now, what's a serious sin what's not? We'll go to that later on. But that's the teaching. The Catholics say, if a person has not confessed their sins, that's it, they're finished. But those who confess their sin and didn't do the penance that the priest told them, the Catholic priest told them, which might be uh, you have to do certain things, if they ever had time to do that or they didn't do it, then the only way that they can make up for it is they've got to go to purgatory and suffer there and then they're released. Now, in other words, they confess their sin, but they didn't have time to make up by doing some fruits of repentance, which will be explained later on. But the Orthodox say that those who can be helped are those who have small sins, unconfessed, from ignorance or whatever, and large sins that have been confessed, but the person didn't have time to uh, produce fruits of repentance, a bit different to them, and they are released purely from God's love and the love of those who pray for them. So those who have died with big sins, Saint Elder Cleopas says, they cannot be saved. For those who sin more lightly, this pathway is not definitely closed. They can go from Hades to heaven. Either in heaven or in hell, um, so closed, is not definitely closed, given that in the future judgment, each one's place, either in heaven or in hell, will be decided Definitively, inasmuch as after this judgment, someone whose orientation was hell can no longer pass. In other words, he's saying the person hasn't had their final judgment. Their fullness will be given at the resurrection. And the last one is a little example which one of the fathers in, in our brotherhood read and he gave it to me and he says, this is hopeless, which is what I was trying to tell you before. It says here, Elder Ephraim praying, okay. Um, a person's writing this and said, when we visited Elder Ephraim, that's the one of Katunakia, not the one from America. When we visited Elder Ephraim uh, in 1973, he was terribly exhausted because his spiritual father, Father Nikiforos, had died. 
on the 23rd of September 1973. And on the very next day, the elder wrote to one of his spiritual children and said, I'm writing this letter to you like a body without a soul. My elder, my beloved elder has died and we held his funeral yesterday in the evening. Even though that was his elder, he still used to get advice from Elder Joseph, but that's another story. That's not important. Elder Ephraim had given money and said that when I die, give 500 sovereigns, some large amount of money, to charities and also do 40-day liturgies for me. That's what Elder Nikiforo said. When I die, I want this money to go to the poor and I want this money to go for liturgies for my soul. Elder Ephraim prayed for his elder with the prayer robe also. He dedicated himself to praying for his elder's soul. Why is he praying for his elder soul? Manathos, monk, because how does he know where his elder is? Was his elder saved or not saved? How does he know? He once revealed to a visitor the way he prayed and the visitor recorded the whole prayer. This is the way Elder Ephraim prayed for his elder. He said, O Pandanasa, which is a Greek name for the mother of God, Queen, mother of God, say a word to your child to forgive this soul. Here I am, a sinful man, Elder Ephraim is saying about himself, going down into hell to plead, it should be Hades, going down into Hades to plead for another sinful man. He's saying that his elder is a sinful man in Hades. Please say one word to your child, meaning to Christ. He's saying to the mother of God. Say, please pray to Christ, who's your son. Uh, Oh, then there will be much joy in the heavens. All the angels will celebrate and the whole heaven will rejoice. And if the master of the dark approaches, meaning the devil... Give him one and send him deep down into the very depths of hell. He's saying to the mother of God, if the devil comes for the soul of my elder, you give him one, meaning in a sense, but obviously spiritual, knock him down and send him into hell. He was repeatedly visited by the grace of God during Great Lent of the year 1974. So the next year, about five months later, because of his holiness this elder Ephraim, he was told that his elder was saved from his prayer ropes and from the liturgies, etc. Elder Nikiforos, who was taking care of Father Ephraim, he was a very rough person. He had a, a passion that he used to get angry and he used to tell off a lot. Not on purpose like Elder Joseph. Elder Joseph, the Hesychus, used to tell off his monks on purpose to test them, to give them humility, used to call them names. Some of them, he never used to even call them by their name. He goes, hey, you, or whatever. He was very disrespectful, but that was on purpose. But this particular man, he had a passion of uh, anger. That was his passion. And Elder Ephraim stayed with him, even though his elder was very rough and was not really capable of guiding him to, to the fullest extent. But he still loved his elder. He stayed with him. He received help from Elder Joseph. And at the end, he prayed for his elder, who was always rude to him. And at the end, his elder was saved. And when the person read this, I think he, missed, he didn't understand the last part. He goes, 
Well, what's the hope for us if we're struggling, if we're not going to be saved? This person was in Manathos. Yes, he had some faults, but we all have faults, etc. And I said, you missed the point. The point is that his eldest salvation was finally revealed to him in 1974 during Great Lent, that the prayers... In other words, Elder Nikiforos was receptive. Yes, he had sins, but he still said every day, Lord, have mercy. He still was praying to God that he be saved. And therefore, he was receptive to the grace, and at the end, God saved him. That's it. There was um, hmm, quite a lot of other things. I suppose I should quickly end up with a summary because people are going to say, well, what, oh, the icon of St Mark. St Mark clearly finishes off this because he was in this uh, controversy with the Catholics when he was over there, and one of the topics was purgatory. So St Mark clearly set out the teaching of the Orthodox Church because he was dealing with these heretics who were saying all these silly things about burnings and all that, and St Mark says, no, 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 this is the Orthodox teaching. And he says, the faithful who have died with small sins, unconfessed, or who have not brought forth fruits of repentance for the sins that they have confessed, are cleansed of these sins either in the trial of death, meaning, as I said before in talk number two, what's called the, um, what was those words I used before, the, the violent death, when people have violent deaths or their souls are going through terrorization, a lot of times these type of things cleanse the person and help them in the next life especially violent deaths, people that have died violently, a lot of times those violent deaths cleanses the person from a lot of sins. So we shouldn't say, oh, that person died a violent death. That person died a violent death, which reduces his sins or her sins. So he's saying there a person can be forgiven sins through their death, trial of death itself, with its fear, or after death they can also be um, forgiven by the prayers and liturgies of the church and the good deeds performed for them by the faithful. These souls, he says, are confined in Hades, but not permanently because they are in a position to be helped because they died with faith and love of God. They died with faith in the resurrection, in eternal life. They died struggling, etc. St. Mark continues, The sinners and those imprisoned after death in Hades Benefit from these prayers on the one hand because they have not been definitively condemned and do not yet have the final decision of the tribunal. On the other hand, because they have not yet fallen to hell. Because remember we said that hell will come later. So they're in Hades. There's a chance for people to be helped while they're in Hades, which will happen after the second coming of Christ. The final place will be after the second coming of Christ. If this is effective for sinners who get some relief... Perhaps they can't be saved, but they can get some relief. How about, he said, those who um, have repented but did not have time to be purified completely and therefore illuminated? They haven't been illuminated. And that's why when we read these fathers, they say, unless a person is illuminated, they can't be saved. A person has to see God from earth. Because we have saints that see God because they have entered into the state of theosis and they see God. How they see, I don't know. I'm not there. I'm, there are three levels in the, in the spiritual life. Purification, 
which is when we're struggling and we're repenting and trying to get rid of our passions and sins and all that and repent. Then the next state is illumination and the next state is theosis. One has to be in the second or third group to be saved. These people who never had time, but they were still struggling, who died in a state of purification, go to Hades. However, as the Father says here, I'll go on, um, but they, do not have, uh, they don't have time to completely be illuminated. If these are very small light sins, they are restored to the inheritance of the righteous or remain where they are in Hades and their troubles are lightened they return towards more honourable hopes. In another section, St Mark says that a person who dies may, with a couple of liturgies, with a few alms given, may be saved quickly. But there are others who will take longer. We don't know unless we have that divine grace to know who's saved, who's not. St John of Cronstadt was asked once, uh, someone said, oh, my mother or father, someone died, and he goes, have they been saved? And as I said another time, he stood there, he prayed because he was holy, and he prayed and prayed, and he said, they have found paradise. They have been saved. But he was able to do that. Come and ask me about someone, I won't be able to tell you because I have not got that discernment, that purity to, to know. All I can do is, as a priest is pray for your dead, but I can't tell you who's in and who's not. Some people, when they die, if they've got small sins, they are forgiven straight away, but the larger ones still need time. So it takes time. And that's why those in Hades say, I hope, I hope the second coming doesn't come. More time, more time. I need more prayers. I need time to be able to be purified. But don't fall into despair. Those who are struggling and we die with our sins and passions, etc., but we want to be saved, the prayers for the dead are extremely beneficial and can save us. But we have to be in a proper state. On the next talk, I want to speak more about how a person's spiritual state should be to be able to receive this help. And that's going to be in the next talk. Any last questions before we um, end? Valentina. depends on the depth of his it depends on the depth of his repentance it depends on the um, his amount of struggle and also uh, he uh, he obviously hadn't struggled enough with the passion such that probably to the time that he passed away it still was quite active in him right but obviously for him to have been helped I'm sure that he constantly was calling out, Lord, have mercy during his life. That's what the prayer means. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. That's what it means. It means I deserve to go to Hades. I deserve to be condemned in hell later. I deserve all this, but have mercy on me. Have mercy. God does not reject those people. That's why that prayer is very important. 
It's you're continually like a person who's saying, have mercy on me, I am what I am, have mercy on me, and keep on trying to struggle. And then the memorial prayers will be of, of great benefit. But if we're slack, we don't care, our repentance is weak, etc. Yeah. When, when you commune, when you've, you know, if, if you've communed on the day you've died and you've cleared your conscience of your sins and when you commune, you wash away a lot of your smaller sins and even sins that you don't know of, but they're sins that are from weakness and unknown, ignorance, whatever. A lot of those sins are washed away. A lot of times those people, as they're going up, you know, a lot of times the demons can't approach them. People say, oh, the harlot or something, they repented and they were saved after a couple of days. They didn't do fruits of repentance. When did they have time to do all these things I'm going to describe to you in the next talk? And we say, yes, but... No, next, next talk, I want to talk about um, why we hear about some people that did really bad lives and then they died on the same day or something and then they're saved when they never even had time to produce fruits of repentance. That's in the next talk. Anything else? There was one more. Alexi, yes? I just wanted to ask about uh, those uh, who were not baptised in the church, for We leave them in God's hands because of the political reasons where there was atheism and there was persecutions and all these problems. And a lot of times people didn't even know what baptism was. So we can't judge that those people aren't going to be saved. We don't know. We leave them in God's hands. But we cannot write them into the commemoration books because they were not baptised orthodox. Okay. But we can do our private prayers. We can light candles for them. We can um, ask monks to pray for them. They won't pray for them in the liturgy but they can pray as private and we're going to learn next time that even the prayer rope can get people out of Hades. And then we um, uh, can pray privately at home, etc., etc. So there's always hope for everyone and we should never judge and say that person's gone to hell, that person wasn't baptised. We don't know. We'll leave it to God's hand. He knows that those people's circumstances, he knows everything. Is that it? Was there one more person? Yes? What's the orthodox view on suicide? If the person wasn't mentally ill, which I should have mentioned earlier on, um, if the person was not mentally ill, which is hard to know these days, then they are not allowed to be buried by the church. They are not allowed to be commemorated in any service. However, you can pray individually for them or you can get someone who's a spiritual person to pray for their soul, but not in the capacity of formally from the church because they... Uh, suicide means you're cut off from the church and you can't pray for someone who willfully cut themselves off from the church. So it's difficult today whether someone died because they're mentally ill. Remember, a lot of medication causes people to not know what they're doing. You don't know, and that's why the church is very much more lenient these days and is burying a lot of these people because it's very hard to determine what was it from. Why are they, why are they you know, doing that? But, but if the church buried them, then you have to assume that they were mentally ill and therefore you can commemorate them because it was not in their power what they did. If the church doesn't bury them, then you cannot commemorate them with panahiras or liturgies, but you can give, if you love the person, you can give money to the poor. You can um, 
and you can um, do good deeds in their name. You can give books out in their name. You can ask holy people to pray for them and you can pray for them. And say, for example, the church didn't bury them, but they were mentally ill, but the church made a mistake, then God knowing that, that the prayers that have been done can even get them out of the place that they're in. And remember as well, if a person is truly mentally ill, they already have been given a lot of forgiveness of sins because they're going through the ridicule of that, like a person with diseases. and all. Uh, Mental illness also cleanses a person. It humbles them, and therefore a lot of times those people are given forgiveness of sins, you know, like, was that it? A lot of questions. Usually no one asks. Anything else? The last thing? Nicholas, yes? Last question. It's a terrible question. You, know, you mentioned that um, a violent death cleanses people from isn't that a form of purgatory? No, because they're still alive. is after you've died, your soul goes to this place and they're burning in um, some fire that they say uh, and that cleanses them and, uh, and they're making up for the sins that they didn't repent for. Probably. But the person who dies of violent death is not the same as purgatory. And the Holy Fathers, were you here for talk to? Yes. The Holy Fathers teach clearly that violent deaths uh, do help to be cleansed of sin. It sounds like purgatory, but it's not. And uh, your question's actually interesting the way you've put it, but perhaps I'm not in the position to be able to answer it fully. That's okay. I will fall back on the church, and the church clearly says that those violent deaths help them a lot. And isn't it the blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sins ultimately? Even when a monk prays with his prayer rope, okay, and we're going to read next time that um, we're going to hear a very nice story there of Elder Joseph who helped his cousin who was in Hades from the prayer rope. Anyway, I don't want to spoil that story, but the point there is that his holiness, the elder's holiness in the first place, comes from and every whatever's holy on earth comes from the divine liturgy in the first place, which is where the sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ occurs. All holiness comes from that. That is the root of the holiness of this world. And if Catholics or Buddhists or Jews or even those, all those people, Muslims, if they receive anything, anything beneficial of even whatever, even though they're not in the church, that still comes from the divine liturgy because the divine liturgy sanctifies the whole world. They don't receive the same certification in the same way as an orthodox Christian. However, as we say, God makes his reign fall on everyone. He gives food to everyone. He clothes everyone and everyone. He loves everyone. But the point is how they receive that grace which comes from the liturgy is not the same as one who's orthodox. When a person has a good thought, a truly good thought, they might even be an atheist but it's a truly good thought, not coming from their own ego, but a truly good thought about something, even that still is from Christ. Even if they don't believe, it still comes because everything good comes from Christ. Everything good. Whether they want to believe it or not, it's, if it's good, it comes from God. If it's bad, it comes from the devil, right? It doesn't mean that they're going to be saved. Uh, that's up not up to me. And it doesn't mean that they're going to be sanctified. But whatever good is given on this earth still comes from the divine liturgy, from the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, that's it. Now, we, uh, uh, people will be given today. I, 
put this book together. Much difficulty, I must say. Um, the, the dead urgently need our help, and we put it together, and it's basically a lot of things I've, which I've said today in the other talk, but also there's a few quotes there. I've put in St Nicodemus for you to have. I've put in St Mark of Ephesus for you, etc., etc. I also recommend this book on praying for the dead, for the loved ones, for one person you're praying for, and this is good. As I said, some people are actually starting to do this back of us, which we have there at the back, or if you live overseas, you get it from um, the monastery, um, St. Paisio's Serban Orthodox Monastery, which is in Arizona. And that akathis is so beautiful, and you're praying for your dead. You're praying for the soul of the person that you're... And as you're praying and you're listening to the words and reading the words, you begin to understand the mystery of death and the reference to Hades and the release, etc. Everything that I said today is in the akathis. Learn to pray for your dead. I'm not saying that so I can sell the book and if you believe that, don't buy it. But the point is, I'm saying it because it's very beneficial. If you want to pray in general for all the dead, in the Akathis at the back, I think it's Akathis book number one, with the gold cross, that's got a lot of Akathis, but one of the Akathis is to pray for all the dead in general. So there's two. And um, those who have not received this book in the past are welcome to take it and... Um, the talk, because of Lent, unfortunately the talk, well, the next one has to be in two weeks' time, a bit close. And after that there'll be no talk for the whole of Lent and the next talk will be probably the second week after Pascha, which is about two months plus. Okay, so next talk is talk number 30. Can't believe that we got there. Thanks God. Talk 30, which will be a continuation of a lot of these things. What's fruits of repentance? What's penance? When we go to confession, etc., etc. All things that are important. So you're welcome to come for that. So stand up, please. Thank you for your attention. That was a bit tiring. Um, through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, save us. Amen. scars of my stumblings 
to help to loose the pains of the dead that were there. Give rest also to the souls of thy servants, O Savior, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Virgin alone, pure and immaculate, that in maiden motherhood brought forth God, intercede for the salvation of the souls of thy servant.